Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Welcome to Varm Blog, and today we have Sean from Antifada and other stuff, I guess. Um, History is a Weapon, which I guess is an Antifada subproject, um, uh, with us today. And we had a, a very illuminating um, <laughs> discussion about labor that we neglected to record. Um, so we're recording it now. Uh, <laughs> I thought we were recording. So if I was pedantic towards you, I apologize if I was talking down to you. <laughs> Um, so you and I have uh, both been very interested in communization theory for a long time. I am a, I am a critic of communization theory. However, with the, with the caveat that of the recent trends in capital, they've been some of the most astute observers. Um, I, I, uh, engaged on a, I don't know how many hours it's going to be when it's released, but it was about 18 hours between 12 and 18 hours of recording on, uh, on going through all the claims made in the history of separation and notes volume four. Um, I'm infinitely a defender of the duvet side of the duvet, uh, theory communist debates and in notes volume, uh, one, although I have my problems with, uh, duvet as well, but I, th- I thought the debates on the failure to the, the conception of, of class as posited by most Marxists do lead into this kind of, and actually this is a, this is a problem in Marxism historically in general, where we posit, Hey, we want to get rid of a thing. What are we going to do to get rid of a thing? Do more of the thing. Um, So we need to get rid of the workers need to have no country but we need to break up these, uh, you know, non-bourgeois empires. We're going to encourage nationalism, and we're just going to assume that economic development is going to dissolve the nationalism away. Uh, similarly, with state capitalism, 
Um, we know that we need to develop means of production. We're going to take on a capitalist developmental policy, but we're going to put it in the hands of a uh, proletarian sympathetic state, develop that. Uh, well, when that fails, what's going to happen? We'll just outright capitalism. Um, so again, looks like we're spreading the very thing we, we, we want to get rid of. Um, and similarly, with the idea of workerism, you know, I, I am one of these people who uh, has never, I mean, I don't engage in the kind of nonsense that you see with a lot of the identitarian left that kind of posits that workers are somehow inherently reactionary because liberals told them so once. Um, or I presumably too, you don't know, do the tailism of um, right nationalists who are right. constantly talking about like, because the workers do it, it's good. Right, because right. there's chauvinism. That means that it's like inherently working class to be chauvinist. Right, because workers are inherently chauvinistic, or at least a section of workers we're interested in profiling at any given moment. But there has been this converse tendency that you and I have both observed recently. Of in theology, we used to talk about this as the God thinks like me problem, hmm. um, where the abstract that you don't really have any contact with actually confirms all your personal biases. And I think that there's been a lot of that with the with the social democrats and workers, where like workers are basically whatever we want them to be and what they believe. They all secretly, you know, they're all secretly super progressive and they believe in all these progressive policies. And on economic issues, they tend to. Uh, they're not. They either are when we don't like them, or aren't when we want them on our side. Racist. Um, and again, racial attitudes amongst the working class and an object any objective demographic are all over the place like yeah <laughs> um yeah you know. especially without the leadership of a proletarian party right <laughs> right i mean yeah, yeah. well so, there's there's this there's this broader tendency i feel like i've been noticing this a lot for years to only to only posit the existence of the working class when it uh behaves in certain ways and certain mm -hmm. tendencies, which is part of, I think, like the, the Marxist Leninist and, and social democratic legacy of only seeing of the working class on, only appearing uh, as a, when it's when it becomes a political subject. Right. Whereas, you know, if you've been looking at what's been happening over the last six to eight months, the working class, the class struggle has been serious and the working class has been self-activated just in ways that like don't don't land uh, on the newspaper as like explicitly political, but 30 million workers quitting their jobs over the last uh, eight months is, is pretty serious. The sort of like quiet, um, uh, so almost general strike around the COVID period when tens of millions of workers refused to go into work until they were baited back with this essential workers sort of um, uh, propaganda press that everybody got. Uh, and, you know, like without any real party representing them, this wave of uh, worker self-activity within the unions that led to the strike wave of, uh, of striketober, as they call it, you know, these are all elements of like the working class being for itself and acting uh, uh, atomistically in its own interest. But again, like only when for, for, for many people on the left, it's only when the working class acts as they suppose that the working class should act, that they actually recognize the class, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, it's. I used to have this debate with a lot of people, even a lot of people who aren't Marxist, uh, Leninist, or or about the only real manifestation of the class is the class for itself, and the class in itself is completely irrelevant. Now, for those who don't know their Marxist jargon, this is the Hegelian framework of Marxism. 
Uh, the class in itself is basically a sociological framework. It is the working class as it exists in capital known to itself. And the class for itself is when it acts in its own interest. And there's this tendency. What I like, I tend to call this political creationism actually um, where you, and, and this is actually a critique I have of EndNotes volume four, because they actually endorse this position, even though their argument doesn't require it, that the working class movements of, of let's say the early 20th century from like 1905 from the the clear end of the long depression um all the way through well uh post-war social compact uh was a clear political manufactured uh movement that it had little organic substance which i don't believe Mm. um i think labor history doesn't bear that out um but I do think uh, they hit the wall that even Edward Bernstein saw, um, which was the the fact that the industrial proletariat in specific, um, the productivist parts of the proletariat was never going to be the majority of the population, which right. totally screws up actually both the insurrectionary and the democratic platform it was if meant you, to be the the antagonistic pulse socialized into production into a mass discipline and it was also supposed to be that sector of the class that then hegemonically pulls the rest of the elements towards it and and overthrows overcomes and that just uh, th- that's like uh, like one of the main takeaways from history of separation right is to mm-hmm. say that this was never maybe for a minute in like germany or something in a certain time it, it was reality but it never happened so then the, what are the consequences of that for uh, Marxist political theory, right? And, and, and I think the other the other complications that I've I've heard not enough people talk about is um, in the earliest twentieth century, we all knew imperialism was a problem. We never defined what it really was. I mean, for for example, in Lenin, it's a combination of monopoly capital plus um, the need for primitive accumulation leading to the conflict between states and the need to expand markets. But then it doesn't make what Lenin doesn't answer is, are they over or under over or underdeveloping the, the, you know, the quote unquote developing world. So are they deliberately suppressing it to keep it as a, as a place to dump over accumulation or, or they developing it as a means of primitively accumulating? Those are actually different questions and they're not, answered i mean historically what we see is a mixture of both you know this whole divided and uneven even development mm-hmm. but even that like when you start dealing with national liberation movements and stuff it becomes very strange in in the, in the marxist context so you all you heard the development of a whole new class theory called the computer bourgeois which is the Ironically, the internationalist bourgeois, which is bad, as opposed to <laughs> the uh, national bourgeois, which yeah, is good. good. They, brought, they can get their own star on the flag. But they but, can be but part yeah. of a block of four classes. Exactly. <laughs> but but then you have to deal with like, well, but that's not like we obviously can't advocate that in the in the imperial world because the nationalist bourgeois wait this but then we have to assume that they'll never be that like none of these groups in small countries could ever be imperialist nations. Which is which is the assumption that they just won't develop, right. um, which is wild. I mean, uh, we were talking about uh, the long twentieth century, which I think is yeah. a great book. One of the reasons why I didn't take it seriously for a long time, though, is I saw it as being too soft on China. 
Um, oh, interesting. Uh, Arrighi famously wrote uh, Adam Smith in the 21st century, right? Uh, which is about China. China kind of taking the taking the lead now as like the, as the world power. I I don't think I read the whole thing, but yeah, Adam Arrighi, Smith in the tw- 20th century, I think, is a great is the book where it's like. Um, uh, all these world systems theorists who will talk about um, the fact that there's still more product leaving China than staying in it means that it's semi-periphery versus uh, versus core country. But then I'm like, but that's true of Germany. And it's always been true of Germany. <laughs> you yeah. tell me that Germany is semi-periphery. Um, I, I, I mean, what? so so the the china thing aside the reason why Arigi is good is fascinating to me and why and why i kind of integrated into my um my theorizing about the long sweep of capitalist history um is because it it posits using brudel using wallerstein definitely using marx uh and using adam smith too it kind of it 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 posits like a um a cyclical framework for understanding the rise and fall of various different capitalist imperial hegemonies and um, it's very like um, the, the systemic cycles of accumulation is what Arigi calls it. And it's for all you Marx fans out there. It's really fun because you have a M to C phase for these imperial products, projects where like money is turned into capital and you have like these growing industrial economies. But then a signal crisis comes in. And all of a sudden, all that C is turned into M prime and you have this financialization process that doesn't destroy the empire. But then it, but it leads to like the slow demise of it when another uh, capitalist regime of accumulation can arise and start this process over again. And what was compelling to me about it was always that um, he looks at the rise and fall. He looks at the decline of the British Empire. Uh, in the early 20th century, its signal crisis being, of course, the uh, First World War, and its second being the Second World War, with a Syria with a with a moment of turbulence in between. And then he says that in the 1970s, the United States saw its signal crisis, and that uh, there would be a terminal crisis someday. So I've always thought of uh, 2008-2009 as the as the uh, terminal crisis for the American sort of imperial project and an entire phase of capitalist accumulation. And I think that if anything, over the last years. It's kind of been maybe borne out a little bit. I'm feeling optimistic about its predictive abilities yeah. at this point. You, you know, you're into Turchin, right? I am into Turchin. I've I'm never read Turchin, but it sounds like maybe similar using Cleometrics. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's similar using Cleometrics, but it's based off of Turchin. I'm going to say this. I'm into Turchin, but I'm going to start off by saying I think Turchin's a reactionary and not admitting it. Um, because of the nationalist bias of the data is at least net methodologically nationalist. So, so for example, when he talks about the post-war social compact, he doesn't mention war two making the U S the wealthiest country on the planet. He mentions like, Oh, there was this social compact and, and like there was social collaboration. And then that's the, like that, the, that's the lead. And that's like, that's the headline. Right. And the fact that over like 50% of the, uh, of the productive capital of the world existed in the United States that like something saying like 70, 80% of Europe's productive capital had been literally physically destroyed. Right. And it wasn't developed or destroyed in Asia too. So, I mean, like, it's a pretty big deal. And also, I think Paul Maddox Sr. was the best writer on this, and he wrote it contemporaneously that he saw that the Keynesian International was actually a way to build a a transit national, uh, a transnational capitalist polity. Um, You're you're talking about the uh, book Marx and Keynes? Yep. And and, uh, there's, there's an essay in it called The Keynesian International where he talks about 
the use of Keynesianism and the use of the Marshall Plan, um, which was not as innocent as everyone thought, and that capital was going to get sick of, and that the capitalists were going to get sick of paying for it to expand it out beyond the borders of Europe. Um, meaning then that the kinds of accumulation that would have to be done in Latin America and in, in the European, um, in the in the non-European transatlantic zone would have to resemble earlier phases of primitive accumulation and not oh. this Keynesian stuff. Oh. Um, which, of course, Matic Matic was a was a council communist, but also one of the weird ones who was a Grossmanite. Um, so, <laughs> Terminal so, crisis to councils. <laughs> right. Um, so, I mean, we don't know a lot about what, about what the, uh, the, the council communists thought um, beyond uh, Panacook because most of them are dead. So, I mean, yeah. didn't live through World War II. Right. So, or the German um, revolutions afterwards. Yeah, I mean, between yeah, Jan Appel got it to like nineteen nineteen, I think, and that's the best you're going to do. Um, what what I think what we have to look at that though is you if you see that in a in the hindsight, what you see is you know an imperial project that was imperializing Europe, but under terms that were super favorable. Um, but yeah. were not super favorable to everybody else. Oh well, because because essential to the to the particular type and span of um, of this of this American imperial project uh, project that arises out of the Bretton Woods Agreement is not, of course, direct state domination of the United States over Europe, you know, but it's instead a hegemony out of which the United States controls the powerful institutions, uh, has a, obviously a favorable monetary and uh, situation. Uh, is able to export not just uh, capital and commodities, but also, of course, technologies, which is the great, you know, gamble that the Europeans took. And um, so, like, it was. It's more the, the 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 American imperial project, at least in the capitalist core, or as it relates to the capitalist core, is very much one of like core periphery hegemony and pulling and making like a an environment safe for capital and safe for capitalist states that kind of draws all the other powers around it in uh, cooperation between the ruling classes with the United States at the center. So like, that's again, when when we talk about imperialism, right? Like that's, it's about imperialistic as we get, but if you're thinking of it in terms of like uh, 19th or early 20th century imperialism, you're going to miss that whole story of, of the post-war compact and the last 70 years. Honestly, and this, when I say this, this pisses people off, but uh, if you read Kowski's ultra imperialism actually describes what happens after world war two, Hey, uh, chalk one up for the K-Man. <laughs> um, whereas Lenin's imperialism describes what was going on prior to World War II, oh. um, but could not have factored the Soviet Union's on equation into the situation. Um, I mean, I would also say, like, part of the problem that Marxists always have, um, and it's a big problem intellectually, but it's also a big problem politically, is that we tend to come up with new class theories actually when they're no longer relevant. Like, for mm-hmm. example, the current PMC thesis is really about the post-war social compact, even if people don't realize it. Um, uh, they tend to come up with periodizations after they're they're not relevant. So neoliberalism, while it's been talked about and used, it wasn't, you know, Marxists didn't invent the term. Yeah. The, the, expo- the explosion of discussing about David Harvey uh, on on the left, and that that particular uh, politically deterministic theory of neoliberalism uh, perfectly coincides with neoliberalism being 
kind of a dead project. Exhausted. Well, right. I mean, it was GFW Hegel himself who said the, uh, the owl of Minerva flies at dusk, right? Like right. we're always only ever able to understand a historical period when it's in its decline, uh, which is why, you know, like as, as much as I was talking about Arrighi and my theories about how we're in a similar period of turbulence where what we call neoliberalism, this regime of accumulation, what we call the American imperial project is like all basically exhausted and in its decline. That doesn't say much about what comes after that, because yeah. we're living we're living in, in this in this time of turbulence and change. And it's very difficult, of course, it's impossible for us to step outside of that and like scientifically analyze the sort of trends that in 10 to 15 years we're gonna have a better sense of you know what was going on in the period what was being created and what was being discarded so we live in a fascinating interesting time but like i think imperative and, and this has been uh my my real political project imperative has been to get marxists or communists or anarchists or whoever people who are sympathetic to the project of abolishing capitalism eventually to understand the stakes to understand the position that we're in you know you're fighting against neoliberalism when neoliberalism is, is exhausted it's a dead letter at this point in time uh try to understand that this is like a a crisis period in which there's going to be more room for activity right now for a quote-unquote left than there would have been in, say, the 1980s and 1990s, because a lot of ship is, shit is up for grabs. We talked about, like, before this, before the recording, we talked about definitions of neoliberalism, and we talked about, like, David Harvey's sort of vulgar political reading of what neoliberalism was, which was a ruling class project. Uh, it was a political choice. It was the Mont Pelerin Society. It was Which dang. Interesting, it was okay, MMTers, monetary theorists and the center and uh, and right populists now all believe was they all, everybody on that the, so basically the left, the center and the right have adopted a politically determinist view in regards to this, the way they frame it's differently, but they like even even the Alex Jonesers talk about neoliberals as if it was kind of like a. It was the Jews, basically. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was. It's like a structurally anti-Semitic theory where it's a small cabal, you know, that's working behind the scenes in order to like, you know, to mold society to their image. When the reality of the situation, if you look at it, of course, is that the rise of neoliberalism it wasn't completely determined, but it was basically the contours of it arose out of some serious incentives on the part of the ruling class to figure out the 1970s profitability crisis. And you had, for a ruling class that used trial and error, right, until the Volcker shop comes, you had like various avenues in which you could have fixed or tried to address this profitability crisis. But the easiest one, the one that's like right in front of the capitalist faces, individual capitalists and capital as a whole, was smashing up a relatively strong working class. I mean, it yeah. didn't. It didn't take them. I mean, you can gild the lily. You can put all the fine Mont Pelerin, you know, Hayekian language around what this project is really meant to be. But they saw it directly in front of them. If we have a profitability crisis, smash the ruling or the working class, smash them right up, and marketize a whole bunch of shit, privatize a whole bunch of shit, and there you go. There you have neoliberalism. But it didn't come out of the heads of these people like some fully formed project. It was again like very much determined by the. Um, political economy and social conditions of the 1970s as we are today of course too yeah so the the the, the big thing was the smack up the smash up the uh the the sectors of state capital but not turn them into true markets this is where i think people don't understand what neoliberalism does it actually compels markets mm. it forces you to enter markets as opposed to 
a truly like what we would call the, the heroic phase of capital, which which admittedly we all know never actually exists. I mean, the enclosures weren't done privately, um, and and no monetary system comes without a cost, yeah. so they're all enforced somehow because a monetary system requires someone basically someone to run the exchanges that requires some use of surplus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, even Marx is a little naive on this. Mm. Um, At least in his, and when I say that people get, but I mean, no, no, not say Marx. Yeah. Not say (laughs) Marx. Okay. We cannot admit any. Because, because um, uh, my, uh, my, my friend of me, drum um, (laughs) has pointed out to me, that you that money has a price and it's the price to maintain the monetary system. Mm. Um, so, like, you can't say that there's no there's no price to money. Um, I've you know, watched you and Colin Dunn, and I've tried to read Colin Dunn, and I hate to say it's over my head, man. That guy's on some some. Which next is level funny shit. because, like, I want to understand it. I don't. <laughs> but you read you you read in notes, and it's like, oh, this is okay. But, oh like, yeah. Well, no. It, <laughs> It's like it's like anything. You you take like a, you take like a decade to train yourself in the jargon and like ways of thinking of a certain discipline, or like let's just call Marxism a mode of analysis or whatever. And then you're like, I got that down pat. And then anything outside of that, you're like, oh god, I have to do this again. Right? Yeah, we got we got to learn medieval monetary history. Oh, and talk no. about the debates. Talk about um, the Bank of London in the fucking 16th century. No. Right? And w- why was metallism ever a thing? You know, yeah. like. <laughs> Um, but I do think we have to, that this is all important because I, I don't know that I'm a, I'm a, that I am a terminal breakdown theory, but I do think a theorist, but I do think the more that people tell me that the, like that crisis is, is like what saves capital every time, but pretends that it goes back to the same form of capital, even if the basic exploitation and commodity dynamics apply, that's not true. And my biggest pushback on that is how much of your life is increasingly tied into rents because people know that yeah. the commodity portions are not profitable. Right. Um, as, a, as a historical legacy of the last 12 to 40 years or whatever. Yeah. Right. I mean, like everything's been turned into a rent market. Yeah. And. Well, it, I mean, we, sorry, we, go, ahead. go ahead. No, it used to be technologically driven and that we like the ability to produce commodities have been have been technologically squished down to nothing. Well, listen, um, like if you if you if we want to get serious about thinking about this, right, thinking about this profitability crisis that we're in right now, have been in for a while uh, using whatever metrics you want. But if we assume right that there's a profitability crisis right now, I think you can see in my mind, um, I think globalization or like the you can call it the spatial fix in like the good work of Harvey. You could talk about like the, the spatial reorganization of capital. Uh, communication and logistics tech- technology. You can talk about uh, this grand sweep that we call globalization over the last 30 or 40 years, the opening of a, the, the, the proletarianization of hundreds of millions of East Asians, bringing them into commodity production for the first time. Um, this, these vast reservoirs of, um, of, of like a latent working class that arises with the fall of really existing communism. Like this whole, this whole regime of accumulation, we can call it that, uh, had as its precepts certain very particular uh, modalities and processes um, has reached its limit. I think that's one of the things that we've seen over the last like three or four years. We're seeing this supply chain crisis now. We're seeing in the fact that you can't pay a Chinese worker 
what you could 20 years ago. They are winning and demanding a, a middle income lifestyle. So the end of this uh, of this process, right, the, the exhaustion of globalization as a capitalist process uh, presumes that there's going to be its opposite, that there's going to be a return to nationally bounded uh, capital. You're going to have a deglobalization process. You've seen already the stirrings of this politically in the United States and Europe, uh, talking about the pivot to China, talking about shortening supply lines, uh, talking about uh, a new Cold War, right, which would presumably put up more barriers to like the Chimerica um, project, essentially, uh, of commodity production. And so like, if anything, if things remain the same right now, I think what we're looking at is like a return to national capital. We're, we're seeing a, a return to nationalism, uh, both politically uh, and economically. And that's that's I don't think it's going to go back to like necessarily the um, nationally bounded and um, industrial. What's it? Um, the ISI um, sort of complex of the 1950s to 70s. I think it's probably going to be more violent than that. And that's the scary thing. Well, what I say, like, for example, is people are worried about, like, a World War III between China and the United States, which I don't actually uh, see on the on the horizon at all. Um, I also think the new Cold World rhetoric is something that everyone's playing with b- because of renationalization. You hear – you this is also talk of orangeuring. Yeah. Um, and you will hear this talk across the board. The fact that the political right has turned on neoliberalism, too – um, is an indication that it's not only dead, but it's been dying for about a decade. Yes. Um, because they're only defending stuff that's not going to work. I mean, like, right. I, I hate to... It's actually funny. Um, the the best analysis of what the right actually does is not from any leftist. It's from Demestra, uh, Joseph <laughs> Demestra, which points so, out... That oh, that's the, uh, French... The French, French, reactionary, the yeah, French right. reactionary yeah, yeah. who points out the conservatism will only call itself that if it is part of a dying regime. That the mm. moment that something is a, in a conservative or reactionary moment, truly in any way, it's actually already lost. Um, that like that's what the, that's why he pushed reactionism as opposed to conservatism in this idealist sense. But there is a sense in which he's correct, in that what we saw with the Republicans during the Bush years, in particular, which was a major neoliberal turn, was saving a system that was already more or less reaching the period of exhaustion. Yeah. The, the question is though, is you don't see social democracy coming back. No. Nor do you see neo-Fordism, which a lot of people naively at the beginning of the Biden administration thought was coming back as well. Um, that we were going to see this massive neo-Fordist push and, and part of, you know, as part of like this green new deal reinvestment uh, rent, rent seeking thing, and we're not seeing that either. Um, the only economy that's been able to weather this and cleanly has been China, right? And, and, and it has suffered way more costs than, than anybody seems to be giving it credit for. It's, it's just, in the midst of its own uh, real estate crisis right now, as we speak, that has right. not yet resolved. I mean, and you've seen this cultural turn in China as well, where you've seen. Something like, uh, actually, I mean, it's funny that people, when people talk about the, the socialism of China and you point out that, like, well, this is just, like, the Red New Deal is basically a more souped up, slightly better version of of, uh, 
of the Great Society program in America. It's like, I'm like, it's not even particularly that socialist. You know, you guys talk about like China's ability to handle um, COVID, and it did. But like, you're also talking about a country, a quote communist country, that has a social, uh, a medical system that, despite having state doctors that are very low paid, actually works. It's one of the few countries in the world where it works a lot closer to the U.S. Um, You have a system also of vast property wealth through speculation that actually did benefit people who, if they were workers specifically in the late 80s and early 90s, had come by their homes in that time period. So, you know, there's all these things about China that the American left doesn't understand. um, um, But it's handled this better. And we've not handled it at all. We seem to be impossible for us to handle it. It seems like, and this is where this is where the political stuff amuses me. Like, yes, some of this is political choices. Mm-hmm. This, there, there was a different way to handle the signal crisis of the seventies than what was handled mm-hmm. politically and socially. You would have to have deepened workers' power. It's the only way you right. do it is that you actually you do Meidner plans. Right. That's it. That was your that was your choice with like what was on the table at that point. But that the political power and energy wasn't there in order to make that a reality because of the way that the social democratic, the labor parties, the socialist parties, the unions had all been captured by a certain, I don't know, capitalist realism about how. Yeah, I mean, how the, the unions are still captured. I mean, it, oh, yeah. it was funny because even someone like uh, Michael Brooks and I were was talking about like reading Bill Bradley, where Bill Bradley was more honest about the problems of paying. Yeah, this this is just this is like third way center center Democrat stuff where they're like, well, the unions, you know, union leadership's being paid in stock options is going to, you know, lead to massive problems. And there's no tie to this. And also close the, unions. The UAW uh, training center scandal. You read mm-hmm. about that. That's just yep. like the perfect encapsulation of the way in which unions became this corrupted broker of labor power. Basically, like a uh, un- untouchable, unimpeachable um, uh, bureaucratic layer that would uh, survive and thrive no matter how shitty the contracts concessions they bargained away would be. And to be fair, we've still seen that. I mean, I've even talked yeah. recently about the uh, the madness of some of the Teamsters, and the Teamsters are relatively radical for a for. Um, a, main, uh, a mainstream business union, but like, if you look at the Teamsters being willing to use uh, basically gig labor to maintain, you know, to to maintain a subsection of the of of its own workforce, is wild. Um, so the, the the big thing there is the Teamsters the Teamsters contract where they allowed during Christmas season um, gig work in their own vehicles so that. To relieve yeah. the pressure on UPS workers, was on it? UPS workers, yeah, yep, exactly. Yeah. Um, and even though they got sued, they got sued over it in the state of New York. Um, the the U, uh, UPS's defense was that the idea came from the union, and and the the uh, the bargaining team purged members of the bargaining team that opposed that step. Sounds so, about right. You know, so like, well, that's, you know, I, I'm in that, a union and I, yeah, I, I'm in know. a union too. I'm in the carpenters union. I know this as well as anybody, uh, but like this ties back to when we're talking about why a social democratic option is not on the table. Part of that is that there's not like a, a working class, like an organized collective working class base for that. Right. You know, like there's, there's a, there's a, 
a middle class slash working class base for, I guess, maybe 20, 30, 40% of the population for something like a Green New Deal or whatever. There's not any real talk about like, um, you know, workers syndicates or like even like sectoral bargaining at this point in time. Or oppositional bargaining. Or oppositional bargaining. Oppositional bargaining is generally, oppositional bargaining is generally off the table. That's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, to be to be fair, like the the PRO Act, which people were floating around, is like this, of course, immensely uh, corporatist document, right? It would strengthen uh, the uh, the business unions that already you know exist in this country. I'll be I'll be at the what eight percent of the private sector that's that's unionized in this. Yeah, country. So it's like what's what something like thirteen percent or fourteen? Uh, what is it? With with public sector workers, it's like thirteen or fourteen percent. But it's yeah. only eight percent of the private sector. Right. Uh, public sector eclipses private sector of like two to two to one or something like that. The one thing that the Pro Act does that's really exciting is it finally repeals the nineteen forty seven Taft Hartley ban on secondary boycotts and right. sympathy strikes, which I think honestly I don't I can't believe that the fucking ruling class would allow those things back. That was like the most powerful weapon the American working class had, which is why it had to be taken away. But that's so, why you're not getting the pro act. That's either. why you're not getting it. I mean, because, because I mean, like, let's, let's be honest because Taft, Taft Hartley was designed. And I, I do think this was intentional to make sure what had happened in, in, in even in Israel, even in, uh, even in, in uh, the UK and definitely in the case of Germany, people don't know the history of the SPD. They think it was like this Marxist party, it was a Lasallian party. The the actual Marxist party was actually apparently worse. Um, after Marx died, when they entered, you know, the offer program, blah blah blah. But what it started out as is a political organization that was a coalition of unions. Mm-hmm. It was not like the Labor Party, right? It was not a. It wasn't like. Um, that's also true for the Labor Party, and it's true for the Labor Party in most countries. That is not, you know. Nothing like that has ever happened in the United States, and Taft Hartley made sure that it couldn't. Yes, no American Labor Party. So can't have it. And and people think, oh, it's just big business. It's also the Democrats making sure that there was no real threat to their weird coalition. Hundred percent, and it had the nice knockoff effect of eliminating, purging the entire left wing of the union movement. All the people, all the leadership, mostly Communist Party uh, affiliated and Socialist Party affiliated. Trotskyists in some cases, uh, who were serious about turning unions into like a, a powerful political force in this country, as they had been in the 1930s. And, basically, the leadership of the CIO gets purged. Yeah. You know? I mean, you had literal oaths. You had to like swear that you were not a communist or else you were thrown out. I mean, that's that's another kind of underdeveloped, I think, history that people have in this country is like, a Taft Hartley, which the Democrats for decades have said is like the slave labor bill or whatever, but really the Wagner Act itself was like the most effective attempt in order to curtail workers' power in this country. Yeah. If you saw the kind of self organization and self activity that the working class in this country overtook in the mid 1930s, uh, early to mid 1930s, that scared the shit out of them, and so you you had to basically what ends up being implemented is a way to um, circumscribe. Uh, what they, power yeah, in this country. What they never wanted again was something like the populist movement of the late nineteenth century, which was able to like take over state houses with guns. So, like, or the sit down strikes, you know, right. the, the, the disruption of uh, of production. 
I mean, this is in the 1930s, like the return of, as I was saying before, like when you talk about the difference between the 70s and today, the return of a working class as like a serious historical subject in the United States. In the 1970s, the working class, the rank and file was that as well, but they were wildcat striking against their fucking unions right. well, on mass. It's one of these things that I always point out to people, like third periodism is terrible for the European left, but it's actually good for the American left. Because during third periodism, you do not have this coalition with the Democrats. The communist, um, the communists are organizing independent lines. They actually they're the only group, even more than the socialists, after uh, you know, and you know, dealing with national chauvinist policies, um, dealing with organizing the black belt, realizing like even from a practical standpoint. I mean. One thing I like to point out to people is the South was used as a textile mill. You know why textile mills are where they are? And and like worker white workers in the South made less than union black workers did in so much that there were union black workers. Mm. Um it was because any attempt to and you know who Carnegie of all people figured this out in Pennsylvania in Appalachia. Mm. Um if you you could pretend to be progressive by using black workers to break up a strike. And it actually, interestingly, was used in ways that to talk in racial politics turned groups that were not considered white, white. Um, so it pushed groups like Cornish and, um, and oh, Manx, Cornish miners, tin miners, yeah. Right, into the white category because black workers were used to break up their strikes. Uh, but um, we but we should talk about class only. Let's not let's not right. you know muddle things with racial categories when it comes to class composition in the United States. Or reverse it, race only. Why why was any of this ever done? Right? Was it just because it was a bunch of of uh, of white bigots who wanted to keep all the black men down? Absolutely like not. that's not like, why slavery happened either. You fucking ding dongs. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's also why. I mean, like. It's also why whiteness and not some other national subject was used and why that's particular to the settled colonial states, because like the the ability to expand people's like maladaptive sympathy with the ruling class was useful. That doesn't exist in your like until the transatlantic trade. Like so this deep history cycles are really to bring it back are really important. And our discussions right now, I think it's I think it's amazing that we live in like this world where like the 1619 project is posited on one end and Chud Maga is posited on yeah, another 1776 I, project. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, okay, but we live literally just demographically the white black battle. Those are two minority groups. <laughs> like, like, and they're, and, and they're, they're ones that are shrinking in size relative to everyone else. I mean, I was, you know, I have I have been kind of shocked at that part of because what I've started to see in this current reactionary moment we end, everyone thought we we're going to be fighting white nationalism and what we're yeah. fighting now is jingoistic chauvinism. But there's there's a smart group of conservatives taking advantage of the fact that um, in this current period of breaking empire where things are declining slowly. Um, a whole lot of people, including a whole lot of Latino and Asian immigrants who are, who are now two or three generations in, um, are, they're, 
their sympathies with one side or the other of this debate between you know right reactionaries and 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 black Democrats is beginning to wane. Huh. Um, and so what you've seen is, for example, in the Newsom re-election, that was largely college-educated white people that re-elected Newsom in, in California. Um, most people set out the vote again. And, and you've also seen the, in, and I've seen it in person here in Salt Lake. There's huh. the increase of like uh, Latino black tensions in, uh, uh, in, in local city politics. It's huh. become... And not that there's a huge black population here, honestly, but like it's become actually explicitly called out. Like um, the 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 like we we were talking uh, in the beginning about these va- vast uh, world historical uh, schemas that the, these this developmental dynamic of of capitalism and imperialism and whatever. And you know, if we accept that we're in this period of turbulence and change where like one cycle is ending, where neoliberalism is exhausted and something new is coming into being, or maybe the end is coming into being. Maybe we're just done after this. Maybe Grossman's right. Maybe this is just the last crisis and we'll just settle into like uh, barbarism or something like that. But if you take all these, these things, which I think are very serious and very real, and you juxtapose them to what politics consists of in this country, it is laughable. It is a fucking disgrace and a tragedy. It's about CRT versus whatever the fuck, and 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 and, tra- and uh, like attacking trans people and their rights. Uh, and then from the Democrats, of course, it's about like a rearguard defense of um, you know it's sort of diversity capitalism project. Uh, right. And- Any anything that's all inclusive in its in its uh, amelioration is racist because it doesn't adjacent like deal with one adjacent person. I don't think that it comes out totally out of CRT either, but we'll see more and more of this. You've seen, you've rhetorically seen, anyway. Well, you've seen, well, like the, the 1619 project, political project, explicitly now has ADOS, uh, oh. African descendants of slave only clauses in some of its reparations movement, and also living wages for all people. It's a weird mix of things. Um, one that we're not going to see any of. This, yeah. this, is the, this is the thing, though. When people talk about, like, well, why doesn't the working class embrace the social democratic or progressive project when they believe in its policies? And I'm like, well, you've never done them. They're fucking depoliticized. This right. country is completely depoliticized. You can go down to the job site and talk about all the fucking programs you want, but every motherfucker down there knows they're never going to fucking get it. They're not going to get it from the Democrats, and they're sure as not fucking to vote for like 20 fucking ding-dongs in a fucking smoky room somewhere deciding to build a new party. I mean, and like, they're right. They're right. They're, they're you're totally not going to build right it that, that way. Right. It's like, it's like politics in this country is, I'm not going to, I don't like the term PMC because I think it's an incoherent category, but it is basically um, in non-Marxist terms, a middle-class versus upper-middle-class discourse. Yeah. Um, and what it, it to put it in into Marxist terms or into class terms, what you have is um the true bourgeois who seem absent. Uh a group they're holding of, on for dear life. Uh, yeah, a group they're of, muddling through. <laughs> right. A group a group of of tech and governmental related rentier and then people who service that. All right, like the um like the the academic institutions, 
um, certain kinds of professional institutions, etc. Uh, that sound like the people say the PMC thesis, PMC thesis, like will include sometimes everybody with a college degree, which is ludicrous, but, but there are real workers in this category. Some, this, this, what makes this category weird. The top of this category, I don't think are workers, but there are real workers. They're not industrial proletariat, but there are real workers in this category. Then you have petite bourgeois and people aligned with that. All right, and think about their interests. Like these people are in tiers, taxes help them. These people have low profit margins. They don't think they can afford the taxes and they're going to lose their, their, you know. And you saw this in the voting patterns, actually. Because tax, the, the tax result revolt of the, of the 70s was a response to declining profits. Right. <laughs> it was like a rational response on the part of the petty bourgeoisie and property owners as like things start to get squeezed to say, well, Got to get it back somewhere. Might as well be from the school system of California or whatever. Right. We, we, we like this school system. It's actually good for free riding off of training, believe it or not. <laughs> but, but, you know, we can't do, we can't, we can't do this ever. I mean, there, this is what gets me is, is people seem to think this is all just about greed. And yes, greed's part of it. But for the, for the petite bourgeois, uh, they're under who threat. Do, who do make up, it is, it is uh, the petite bourgeois and a certain kind of labor elite. In rural aristocrats areas. of labor like myself, right. yeah, right. In rural areas, who who, who tend to be Trumpists, mm-hmm. um, they tend to look at their communities and see things are getting worse, which they are, which they objectively are. Uh, opiate being opiates being the big headline. Opiates one. one, but I mean, just general, like there's no jobs. Yeah, um, health outcomes, life expectancies declining. It's it's all there, right? Um, you know, their children leave because there's nothing for them. Yeah. Um, you know, the JD Vance is, I mean, like, I, I make this joke like I could have been JD Vance if I had gone into the military mm. and like had a had a senator uh, get me, you know, uh, the JD Vance story, of course, is the one where he doesn't say that he got help from us from an Ohio state senator to get into uh, Yale. Yeah, well, to, to get to get the advantages at at uh, Ohio State uh, and get into Yale. Okay. Um, and he got that by being just very lucky in his military placement because he was not in. He was he got a what we call non-pog. So he was um, he was not a grunt. Hmm. Um, he was like he was like non he was like non-officer military intelligence or something similar to that. Um, which I've had friends like I have. I'm from Georgia. I have you know I've never been in the military, but I have deep ties to it because you don't where I'm from. You, you don't really. <laughs> There's nothing else to do. Also, that's large parts of the United States. Oh, but yeah. What, my my best friend uh, out of high school, we both ended up working in factories for a couple of years. And he got the fuck out. I got out by going to state school. He got out by going into the military. And he's 22 years in right now. And he's working on an advanced degree. This is a guy that like got C's and D's and barely made it through high school. It's it's a real thing. That way, yeah. You and I have a similar background. Like, your yeah. way out of where I live was you got into a state school and then, and then left. Or you... Or, or you went back and became a teacher, which I did both. Um, or you uh, went into the military, or you got very lucky and got one of the the, the uh, Geico or the production jobs. But the production jobs in the area, even though they came back, only tend to need fifty to two hundred people around the entire factory. Yeah. So uh, it's like, the elastomer factory I worked at was like that. Or you could do the alternate thing, which is go into state school, drop out, go in, drop out or whatever. Then realize in your 30s, like, wait, my uncle's a carpenter and he's doing fucking great. Why don't I put my name in yeah. for an apprenticeship and say, fuck 
academia, fuck uh, all these white collar bullshit jobs that you hate anyways, and just be a, a labor aristocrat for the right. rest of your life. Have but a retirement, it, have a defined benefit pension, for example. <laughs> but I do think I do think one of the things, like the politically, this has led to like places like the DSA. They don't understand how the unions work because their ideas of unions are either teachers unions and whatnots, which in which in urban areas can be radical, can yeah. engage in social unionizing. But the, that's not the way they work in most of the country. And what is not talked about is urban area union membership and non-closed stop states are low. Do you know why? Right, it's just to work. expensive. Uh, it's not just right to work stuff. I'm in a right to work state. Union membership in the rural areas is high mm. because local dues, the local end of the dues are low in rural areas. But to maintain a building in an urban area is too expensive, so the dues shoot up. So less and less teachers join, unless it's a closed shop. Why? I want to. I want to go back to. I, I think this was. I think you were on a, a good, an important point here about this sort of divide. The 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 way like the class composition of the United States and there being these sort of two this divide this like bifurcation of it. So I think it's very it's very similar to like uh, Gabe Winnett had this great book about the healthcare industry mm-hmm. in uh, Pittsburgh. I don't know if you read that. The next shift it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, what he posits, and I hadn't thought about this till I read it, was that. One thing that the New Deal order creates, somewhat consciously actually, is it created like a um, two different tiers for being a worker in the United States. It's right. part of the reason we don't have socialized medicine in the United States, and a, a lot of these other sort of um, you know subsidies to the wage fund uh, is because um, you had like an interior where you had a private welfare state, and you had like a at, at a certain point what like thirty something percent of American workers were inside this sort of productive union sphere, uh, where they had all the benefits that they had in Nether in the Netherlands, you know. But it was all right. through the union, uh, you know, provided by private capital, which was forced to bargain with the unions because of how things were. And then you had the vast exterior to that, where people who were who were working you know, shitty jobs in order to service those people within the interior or working in government jobs outside of that, or people just kind of like in what's equivalent of the gig economy right now, odd jobs and shit like that. And what's happened is that interior has hollowed out, right? So that everybody now, by and large, lives the way that like, say, a black domestic worker in the 1950s or 60s would, would vis-a-vis like uh, a unionized industrial worker. I mean, those conditions have generalized, but then... And this is geographically situated too. You have this vast complex that you're talking about of like tech and media and education jobs, which represent like, yeah, like a, a completely different, I don't know, like world basically. Right. For, it's for credentializ- the expansion of credentialization. So we all feel like we've had to do something to get this. Like it's mm. somehow meritocratic. And then it's interesting because if you compare this to what, to the situation in the social democratic countries, what you see is similar developments, actually, for different reasons. Um, but here, it has created a kind of bifurcated class consciousness um, that mostly conservatives, and now a group of, you know, we've seen a lot of socialists try to pick this up, but poorly. Um, and then you what, see... What, uh, pick up the PMC thesis? Yeah, the PMC oh, thesis yeah. and this, that, yeah. and the other. I mean, the PMC thesis was a left thesis, but it was it was actually supposed to explain what was going on with the baby boomers. Mm. Um, that was Barb and Aaron Wright's goal. It's a combination of basically the... It's a combination of like three different class theories kind of ad hoc. 
So it's, it's like yeah, a Minnesota. Burnham Burnham one, right? It's James Burnham's yeah. in there explicitly. Yeah. That's why the M is in there. Then there's the professional administrative class theory of like people like the later Frankfurt School economist uh, Frederick Pollock. Hmm. Um, and also, oh, that's an airplane or something, huh? That is. Or a truck? It's an airplane. airplane. Oof. Good times to be a podcaster, huh? I hope you're not getting like. 9-11, man. Are you in like a aircraft zone? Are you supposed to be? <laughs> um, I'm near an airport, but they're not generally that low. Ooh. Well, I hope everything's okay. I'm sure it's fine. Is that another one? Is that a fighter jet trailer? Yeah, jet? that's a jet. Real? Wait, did you see it? Yeah. So there's a jet trailing a passenger plane? No, there's a jet trailing another jet. That's what I just saw wow. I looking out the window. All right, so um, the Air Force is doing maneuvers or something. Yeah, or we're is. in World War Three now. And Who knows? Signing off, folks. Although, like, one. you would probably know before me because I live in, I live in Salt yeah, Lake and you live in New York. True. You're a bigger target. If the, um, feed, if the feed gets cut, that's like a 10 gigaton bomb being dropped on New York City. Yeah. So long, uh, folks. <laughs> um, so... Uh, I, what I've just found fascinating about this is we've now seen Striketober. Let's talk mm. about the left response to Striketober because yeah. it was bad. Yeah. By the was time it the anything? Left, yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, by the time the left realized it, it didn't happen for the most part. Like, we did see major work actions across the country, particularly in healthcare, where things got pushed to the brink. Things um, that, uh, that initially arose with the lockdown. Right, you know, like these this kind of tension building for the last year and a half. When again, was I talking about this pre-taping or after taping? When we were talking about like the kind of quiet uh, wildcat general strike, a little bit of both. Yeah, COVID hits. Yeah, so we saw that, um, and it's finally it finally hesitated when like things like Pfizer, uh, Kaiser Permanente tried to increase their profit margin even more. Mm-hmm. Um, Nonprofit Kaiser Permanente, which right. comes interestingly out of the Kaiser Steel manufacturing. It was their like private uh, social democratic internal welfare way of keeping their workers right. healthy. It, and now the steel is gone and they're just a fucking hospital network. You love right. it's so axiomatic of how things have gone in the last like hundred years. So yeah, so you so you have that push that went well, you have the John Deere stuff, you had a lot of strikes. Um you also have the tensions around education, which have been va- what what I find interesting right now um, is that for the past thirty years, the left, the cultural left, and we can, we use our Quermont's left, have been winning almost every cultural debate. Mm. We're not anymore. Like I, I being if you're not in a major city. If you're not uh, at Evergreen College. Right. Um, like, I've heard CRT used more by conservatives, and they don't know what it is. I mean, and, and neither do the liberals defending it, frankly, yeah. because some of the stuff they say is also ludicrous. It's well, like, and, they're, and they're trying to deny something which is really real, which is that after the failure of uh, the insurrection last year, of the rebellion last year, when def- like real changes, like defunding the police or radically changing it so that the police didn't just murder black people all the time and mass incarceration. Instead of that, you got critical pedagogy. You got uh, D'Angelo's white fragility. You got, of course, like all the corporations st- being BLM. Been happening 
slowly for the past yeah. two decades. But, but then yeah. ramped up as a sort of like counterinsurgency against like the proletarian elements of rebellion that existed like for that summer. And that's all we're left with now, because, of course, it's been the opposite of defund the police. Uh, Biden just signed a big bill to give more cops. So you have to now litigate I'm this culture war because there's no ability that we're at an impasse where there's no ability for the state to say something super controversial police. defunding the police without abolishing them is stupid i'm like i'm just gonna say that outright um because uh, if they still have their social function and but and still have access to any funds yeah but they're no longer behest to the state to get them they can do whatever the hell they want um, and there were people on like the whatever you want to call it post left and people and the the right populists like uh, conservative nationalist people who were right that what you're going to do is you're going to open the door to private mercenaries on the streets as like right. it's it's not like you're changing obviously you're not changing the capitalist social relations so something has to come into that vacuum in order to replace it and it's, it wouldn't necessarily be good it'd probably be really bad well I mean it, it's just. I, we've also seen a major, actually, the only crime we've seen an uptick in, actually, not even property crime. It's been murder. murder. Yeah. Um, and at first, it, like, there was a decrease in murder during COVID. Then it shot way up, but not in everywhere. And here's what, here's my response to conservatives when they talk about it. Oh, it's because of the defund police movement. Well, police only cleared 20% of murders in a lot of these places anyway. Right. So, and like 20% of murders is like, those are the people who come in and tell you that they did it. <laughs> like, or they just gun somebody down, like their coworker, like at work. Right, it, yeah, yeah. It, it, with a camera right, right. there. <laughs> like, bec- like, like basically 20%, a uh, 20% clearance rate, you'd ha- you're, you're better. That's, uh, that's odds are actually slightly less than randomly arresting the right person. Right. So, um, so I don't want to say the cops were doing anything, but something changed. Um, so that now has been discredited amongst a lot of a lot of regular people of color. I'm not going to lie, and this is not something that the left. Eric Adams is our mayor now. I know what you mean, right? <laughs> um, and I also think the right is is getting smart to playing off the class tensions within um, these minority groups. Yeah. Um, oh, within the Democratic coalition, really. And it's they're like, breaking yeah. up. So yeah. what's happening is the Democratic coalition has never made sense. The Democratic coalition has been, if you made less than $80,000 a year, the, for each, like, what is it, $1,000 less you made, you were more likely to vote Democrat. And if you made more than $200,000 a year and you weren't in the Sun Belt. Yeah. So basically. It's like a donut hole there of, like, right. the comfortable middle classes, yeah. So, like, middle class and petite bourgeois white people, like, labor aristocrats, and petit bourgeois people, yeah, okay, they were Republicans, um, and a lot, and then it's age and region based. So, like, you know, pensioning workers tend to be conservative because they're pensioning; they're no longer part of the active workforce, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we can explain these things. I, I remember everybody pinching up, oh, this is like fascism. This is this weird fascist class called Robert Evans. Um, <laughs> no comment, no comment, no comment. <laughs> um, I'm not a shit talker, I'm, I'm a gentle person. I, I um, take ideas, not people. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, the thing is, I thought some of this was interesting. Um, that they, they were finally picking up on this. A lot of these liberal adjacent anarchists were picking up on this. Um, but what I didn't realize was like, oh, but they're, they're reading this wrong. They're reading this very wrong. 
Michael Lind and these like national conservatives actually have a better reading of what's going on. Um, and, and they've been better pivoted to take advantage of it. The left, like this should be in all rights. This should have been our moment after Bernie. Yes. Yes. I, yeah. Well, when we're talking about the failure of the left, whatever that even means anymore, I don't even know. What I have means, no fucking idea. <laughs> well, the failures of the left to like integrate or play any role whatsoever within this strike wave, man, that is a damning. Damn. It, it's a, it's, it's a, it's an indictment on the left post Bernie Sanders, because and everybody you know we're definitely we're left with now, instead of this Bernie Sanders moment, which was had all of its problems or whatever, we're left with like these different cliques and sects. Now some combination of like rad lib anarchists, uh, you've got like bog standard social Democrats who still think that they can enter into the Democratic Party when that's proven to be bankrupt as fuck. You have like neo Stalinists. You've got Browderism is back now. You're like trying to do patriotic socialism in the United States. There has there was never it seems to me, except for some elements of the DSA, and I give them credit. And what's left of the Trotskyists are almost gone now. There was no serious attempt to look back and say, well, this electoral strategy failed. Maybe we shouldn't just go and ape political theories from a hundred and you know from eighty a hundred years ago. Maybe we should realize that if there's one lever, if there's one missing piece to this project that we were supposedly trying to do on behalf of the working class, it was actually like integration of that into the working class itself. And you had after Bernie over a year between that and Striketober in order to play any role whatsoever in being part of like. A relatively novel and exciting working class upsurge, and, and it was completely to, squandered. You, you've seen Stalin. Uh, this is something that's haunted me. I read a book called Tyranny of Theory by Ron Tabor. I that book's mixed. It, it some of its some of its critiques of Marxism are dumb, some are not. Um, but it it did predict one thing accurately, and it did it in 2012. Mm. It said after the end of the Occupy Anarchist movement, that end of anarchism, we were going to see a rebirth of Marxism. But it was going to get frustrated um, and go into social democracy. And they get frustrated again and try to recapitulate Stalinism, but without any states that really support it. So it's, mm-hmm. so it's going to, you know. Yeah, and, that's a good call there, bud. <laughs> and and what, what happens after that is like degenerations in the conspiracism mm-hmm. um, because you have to keep – uh, movements towards kinds of right populism, and I, you know, I thought this fear was was somewhat overstated for a long time until, not because you know, Jimmy Dore is one of these maddening figures when people are like, well, you agree with, and I like Jimmy Dore, and I'm like, actually, when 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 Jimmy Dore speaks about the Democrats, he's often correct. Yeah, like just, he just has wow. nothing. He has nothing besides that. But yeah, he not, can be right. right it, like, that. well, what he wants is basically. Right populism with a re- with a with a with a with some kind of pink core oh. ultimately, and that's all. You know, and he's very mad at the Democrats for for legitimate reasons. To be to be frank, we however, all? like what I mean, like the People's Party. That's that's the Green Party part two, and it's even less impressive. Yeah, like, um, and so what do they do? Well, the other thing is this is all a media thing, and that's his job, and so he's going to go where the money is, and we saw this with the history of alternate. Hmm. Um, and I know that sounds strange, but alternate was this liberal progressive. Oh, you and me are the same age. So I, I'm, you do I'm, remember I'm right? on you. Yeah, of course I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, gray zone comes out of alternate. Hmm. 
And I don't see this to start crap. The, you know, not everything Graves on does is illegitimate. They're actually good on certain things about imperialism. Oh, yeah. But they were clearly chasing uh, declining state funding sources for, for getting able to do good investigative journalism. Mm. Right? But that's that's why, like, I have no other explanation for why Max Blumenthal, for example, pivoted overnight on his theory of coverage. Like... Um, and the, the vaccine fa- thing too. Everybody, with yeah, the, that's the huge culture war now is the vaccine thing. Picking up on the vax, uh, picking up anti-vax and anti-mask. Even when some of this, even when some of the mask points are should be like, I really do wish the left would have something to say about the fact that clearly a lot of these um, politicians and elite bourgeois do not actually follow the health guidelines yeah, in the liberal areas that they're trying to enforce. Of on everybody. course, dude, dude, we're, we're at this crazy fucking point right now where rational, reasonable health policy, not just in the United States, mostly in the United States, but across the world too, is impossible because what quickly happened in the two, three months after the pandemic started was that you had this dumb, ridiculous, powerful, bifurcation of opinion uh on the on the plague on the pandemic uh that because it's the united states turns into a republican and a democrat uh and and frankly both of them were wrong on stuff no and both that's what i wanted to say is that is that now we're at this point a year and a half later where this the pfizer has opened up the ip for this new therapeutic that's like 90 percent successful it's now could be made generically like uh 90 successful in keeping people out of the hospital uh, we've seen that the the vaccines are simply not working in the way that they need to work in order to stamp out this disease. And we should be having right now, we, you know, like in the media and amongst the ruling class, there should be a, a conversation right now about how to wind this thing down. Instead, we're stuck in the same fucking bullshit, like either complete lockdown or open up that we've been having for the last year and a half because there's this mass political impasse right now. We're in this like realignment crisis theory of American politics where real things can't even be talked about. Where right. Bi- Remember when Biden was like the return of FDR? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's maddening. It's maddening and it's maddening how short these people's memory are, including some of the left commentators oh, who, yeah. I, and again, we're not, we're not shit talkers here, but I have seen left commentators go from, Criticizing the center of the Democratic Party to supporting Biden and then getting rewarded for it mm-hmm. to like now picking up vaguely right populist talking points. Uh, the, the biggest one I am going to name names. And I, I this is a person I know, like I have met this man. We have had dinner together like um, Richard Wolf going on Jimmy Dore to, t- to say that even if the I took a class with Richard Wolf. Yeah, I was the class ultra. He would he did not like the things I was saying. This was like twelve years ago or something. Anyways, go uh, on. But 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 Richard Richard Wolf was on Jimmy Dore to talk about even if it's not true that the left should be taking up some of these anti-vax mandate points. And I look, I it's think hellish. the OSHA mandate's stupid. Not not like to be frank. Not that we shouldn't have mandates. That's not my argument. I think like like people are saying, oh, it's clearly legal. I'm like, no, it's. No, it's not clearly legal for the federal government to use a loophole in OSHA, which, by the also, way, fuck OSHA. If you yeah, work in construction, like, like you hate OSHA, man. Right. It's also, trash. like, like when does OSHA ever enforce shit? 
They've like, got three or four enforcement officers for like the metropolitan area of like over 10 million people. So the only time OSHA will ever show up on your job is if you're crushed by a fucking beam. They'll show up and like check the dead box on their form or whatever. Right. And so so I point this out to say like we've been go- we've been gearing up for this, just like for example. On uh, the Green New Deal, we're still going to be fighting over this and this Build Back Better program. And the progressives are dying on the carbon tax stuff. And I'm like, one, there's no evidence that carbon tax is going to work. What it's going to do is just increase prices on the lower end of of purchasing. Two. Then you got some Jilly John shit. (laughs) Right. Well, right. Exactly. And it's just like, two, like. You guys, you guys keep on saying you understand that these, like the pipeline stuff and, and all this, is going to cost jobs, but then you never deliver on the jobs promises to counteract it. So of course everybody hates them. Like, look, the, the larger point here, and and like I've gone through, I think a lot of 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 thinking about um, about things since uh, Bernie. Uh, uh, succumbed to the Democrats, let's call it, since the Bernie movement proved out to be based on faulty uh, principles, or at least to have failed on its own terms. Yeah, people I, people can apologize for all the shit they said about me for being right about Bernie. They can apologize <laughs> to me too, if you want. You know, People were saying, why can't you get in the can for Bernie? And I gave them some good reasons and I got a lot of shit for it. But right. um, now, I figured Antifada was also in similar... I started yeah. listening to you around that time and I'm like, no one else is saying Bernie... Like we weren't, I wasn't doing that whole ML like, oh, Bernie's and blah, blah, blah. But I was just like, it's not, it, it's not going to do what you think it's going to do. It's not going to. And you can't replay the, you can't return to social democracy. You can't just press the social democracy button. Yeah. Conditions are completely different. Uh, I, if, but, we, but, but, but like when we go back to the strike shit uh, that we were talking about, um, there again, should have been an attempt to like, uh, I'm sorry, let me back up again. One of the things that I realized, and this is, maybe this is um, uh, an overreaction, maybe this is hyperbolic, but I don't give a fuck about anything Democrat anymore. I don't even look at it as like some sort of quasi sort of imminent political horizon, you know, that you can see in the inner workings of the Democrat party. People tell me, oh, local elections, we can run as Democrats. Shut the just I, I can't fucking do it anymore because all people are doing is once you dip a toe into those waters, all of a sudden you're dragged all the way under. You're dragged into this river and stream, this tide of fucking trash, which makes you ultimately neglect the really important shit, for example, that's happening like with Striketober, right? Which is that it's not simply that unions called a whole series of different strikes, that the union leadership said, oh, this seems like a good time to strike our contracts up. Let's go for it. In case after case after case after case, you had the rank and file of these unions forcing those unions, the union leaderships, to call strikes. 90, 97% of workers uh, going out for strike authorization, workers turning down contract after contract after contract that the union had bargained for them because it wasn't fucking good enough, and they were pissed off, and they went up against capital and their union leadership. You have, like, it's not just that there's a bunch of strikes right now, it's also that the working class at least within unions and probably outside because we see how many people are quitting their fucking jobs right now because they're fed up and pissed off. You have 
self-activity within the working class arising again in this particular moment, in this place and time. Workers militantly pushing against the bounds that they are tied in. This is part, again, of this turbulence and this reforming of something that we're seeing right now. And the left isn't part of it at all. In no. fact, people didn't even fucking know about it until it happened. Why, why are there not people on the ground? If you claim you're a communist or you're a socialist, why aren't you familiar with what's going on in the union contracts, within the working class, in your local area, and be able to report back to the rest of us so that we can get a picture for how the world fucking works that isn't one given to us by MSNBC only, or Fox News or the fucking nation, because they sure the, as fuck aren't covering it. The only thing that we heard from leftists was attempting to salt Amazon, pro, uh, Amazon unionization. Right. Which is I'm not I'm not shitting on that. I'm not saying that's not real. I'm not, you know, it was. But like that was the only thing anyone was hearing about and left media. And then I started seeing like, you know, I'm a union member. I'm a rep. Actually, I'm not just a member. And um, and I, I can go all day about how like I have no delusions about what unions are like. Oh, um, and, and, but and I have friends that work on that. Another thing, this bugs me actually. Even even though my you know my friends who work on the other end, they're good people. Some of them are good leftists. Some of them are some of them conservatives. But um, but how much dirt I get on what's going on in the, in the unions? Not even in my union, but from having to talk to the professional end because the professional end and the member end, even if you're a rep, almost has a wall across it um so like i'm not surprised that the left was blindsided about this but they should have known the atmosphere of workers and the reason why they don't let's be fucking frank they're not oriented towards the working class right they're not they're oriented towards twitter right exactly <laughs> they're not, i don't like they're not even oriented towards like like professional class really like that's the thesis what they're oriented towards is the id of the chattering Twitter? You and I both know is where the chattering classes. By that I mean the media mostly yep. and goes, academics and right yeah. goes to like popularize its ideas in a particularly stupid form. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other people go to make fun of those ideas or pick right. them up. But there, there is a social dynamic that is undeniable that's different from what you see in Facebook, where Facebook siloing calls for these weird silos of bizarre beliefs. Twitter is unsiloed, but it allows for people with marginal ideas to feel like they have a whole lot more fo- because they don't know the nature of who their followers are. Mm. Um, it's impossible. Like, I, I used to try to figure it out. I don't. I'm like, I know who my favorite followers are, and those are communist construction workers, and I have a decent amount of them too. You guys, if you're out there, I love you guys. You, you guys right. are the best. Um, but when I look at Twitter, you know, one of the things I saw is I've seen people totally ratioed and canceled, like for real canceled on Twitter, and it didn't transfer to not even other media forms. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's become its own world. Um, and it's and it's and it's fooled uh, the the left at large into believing that it is the world that it has right. any influence whatsoever on what's happening on the shop floor at the John Deere factory in fucking Iowa. 
what, doesn't and, matter. It's, it's actually worse. It's worse than it doesn't matter because it fools people into thinking that that's the thing that matters. And they're blindsided when 30 million workers, many of them fucking pissed off because of how they've been treated since this pandemic happened, walked off the job, quit their fucking jobs. And in 30% of those cases, didn't even have another giant job lined up. They you just know threw their apron in the boss's face and said, fuck you and left. You know, I, there's all kinds of people ask me, why is there a labor shortage? I'm like, work workers are quitting. Women left women left the workforce in mass for childcare. Early uh, retirements. There's been a ton of retirement. People did not realize how old our labor force was. You've had um, you've had uh, you've had um, futurists and venture capitalists telling the American working class that all the trucking jobs are going to be automated in the next two to three years, and they say that every year, right? And so that we it turns out instead of self driving trucks, which I'm sorry are never going to happen, you have a vast trucker trucker shortage. You know, people like truck drivers just don't exist, and the ones that do exist have been put into these fucking um, uh, CDL mills basically that like people come out of it with fifty thousand dollars in debt after working a hundred hours a week driving a truck for a year so like the complete opposite of what we were told by the by the economist or by wired or whatever about how the job market was gonna look it's the complete opposite the futurists have been wrong about everything like like the <laughs> whole like the the online uh teaching was gonna be like I find it hilarious that online teaching like flipped who was for it and against it during COVID, like hundred percent flipped, mm. um, one eighty. Um, uh, because I think conservatives realized that their assault on childcare was also their assault on public schools was actually predicated on them not everybody not realizing that it was the only viable form of childcare. Mm. Like, yeah. and, like how many people? How many women have dropped out of the and men have dropped out of the workforce, out of the workforce for lack of childcare? Tons, tons, and. And uh, I know a whole lot of people who are trying to survive off one more on one income now. We also, but I, I also think you people weren't realizing how old the workforce was because boomers, as much as we hate them, as much as they're the rest of the generation that's ever existed in the in the era, the, the any working class boomer cannot. They also can't retire, particularly after two thousand and seven. So a lot of them, and they and they don't want to because they don't trust things after two thousand and seven. So a lot of them until now were basically planning on staying in the workforce till they died. Yep. At um, least be a Walmart greeter in their eighties or whatever. Right. So well, I mean that that's like not even those are even older than boomers. But yeah. So all those people are gone too now because the, the 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 cost benefit of dying of COVID really is exactly. So there's all that there. I also think there is a there is a theory that is applicable, and I people don't like me talking about this because it sounds like I'm anti-immigrant, and I'm not. But that that there were sectors where the immigrant the immigrant workforce was used and celebrated by liberals for being used to keep prices down. That now that that workforce is not available, meatpacking. Um, yeah, meatpacking is a huge one. You know who works in meatpacking? Because my brother, who's a, who's an ex felon, works in meatpacking for a while. Um, and got out of it after he almost lost his finger. Um, was immigrants and felons, like, like uh, the, the, the reserve army, right? Pull right. these people out, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, not, I'm sure there are some. I don't want to sound like I'm just over categorizing or equating immigrants and felons or anything, but that's who no, I no. saw there. No, like, and, and and if you ever look into the history of the meatpacking industry. 
the reason why you have these vast industrialized uh, factory floors, essentially, uh, to produce meat and then refrigerate it and send it refrigerated to the cities was uh, a capitalist efficiency. It was the, it was the massive increase of productivity because there were union fucking butchers in every city in this country who were like a log jam to fucking profitability. And so it was given the fucking like uh, like steel plant treatment, basically. And then as like the union jobs dissipate, as unions get smashed up, it becomes like the lowest of the low, but also like a relatively steady job where you can make a good butt for it. And, but, but here's the thing, dude, here's the thing. And I've been thinking about this a lot too. I know you're not done with the labor shortage thing, but like something that happened first with COVID and now with the supply chain and just-in-time production crisis, which we're living through, is that en masse, uh, working class labor has become visible again. Yeah, it's completely mystified and invisible in a uh, in an economy where you can like swipe right and uh, a commodity shows up at your door two days later, or you're going into the supermarket and you look down at the steak. It's already prepackaged. It's like it came like that off of the cow or whatever. Now, part of I think this workers' resurgence in the United States is because with COVID, we the working class became visible to ourselves again in a way that hadn't been true due to like the spectacular nature of the economy. But we've become visible to ourselves in a way that does actually mirror some of like some of the in notes predictions that our traditional ways of organizing are not effective. Mm. Um, like I think about like the, uh, I'm waiting to find out the Burgerville finally got settled, right? The, mm. the great Portland, you know, I, I, uh, I WW uh, service sectors, which, Hell yeah. Union. Uh, but it's unclear if there's a no strike clause in it. Like, I still haven't heard that for sure. I think there probably is. I and, bet the modern IWW wouldn't really have a choice except to do a no strike clause, right? Uh, we'll see. Well, we'll see because I know that they forbid their, their laws forbid it, which would mean that the, that the union with the IWW would have to disaffiliate with the IWW National, and that'll look really bad. But the my point is, though, like, here's one thing that we have to deal with. Not only do we have the stuff with unions, let's talk about the real labor thing here. Um, manufacturing's been having a crisis for this entire time, and people are, are quitting in mass. But you know what? You're not seeing. You're not seeing an increase in the raw numbers of unionization. You know what you actually saw? Union percentage went up to like nine or something, in pre- but only because so many people got laid off in the beginning. And now, as they're starting back up, they're not starting in the union jobs. So despite all this, despite all this, we have to admit that the workers still don't really totally trust the unions right now. No, and, and, no, 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 no. Yeah, and, I mean that's, like, that's that's part of that uh, rank and file upsurge I was talking about before. Is it any surprise after the history of the UAW and? Uh, 30 fucking years of concessionary contracts while the fucking union leadership drives around in limos making a half million dollars a year no matter how shitty the third or fourth or fifth tier is is there any surprise that these people are going against their leadership and turn like uh, and, and basically like turning down contracts of course it isn't P- american workers got this is like haram i can't believe i'm gonna be saying there's a lot of people out there are gonna be like oh i can't believe you said this about u.s unions there's no fucking labor movement Anybody who calls it a movement is a fucking shill. It's a series of decaying and dead institutions that are business unions for the purpose of brokering uh, labor power collectively. And 
to the extent that they are powerful, it's because they exist within the bonds of a system that was always bent, always bent to bind the working class within the capital labor fucking relationship what, in a supportive status. What did most union money that wasn't, I mean, dues can't go to this, but what did most, every, almost every ounce of union money for the past 50 years, like 90, I think it's like 90% of its non dues based budget has gone into lobbying Democrats and for fucking what? They, it, yeah, they, there's the, they're basically are the Democrats for all right. intents and purposes. They are part of the Democrat apparatus. Right. And, and they haven't, and they haven't done anything about the Democrats screwing labor over and over and over again. And yes, the Democrats have finally sort of made talking points to stop that. They're no longer doing it explicitly anymore. But but, they, but it's a dying part of the coalition, and then Democrats have known that for a long fucking. That's time. That's why they is... haven't banked on it. No, that's, of course not. They know it's a dying part of the coalition, and I I am tired of people like positing false consciousness or whatever for why the why workers don't like unions, and I'm like, no, um, I I personally as a, as you know a, a believer in labor, I think it is my duty to be in my union and it's advocate a- for my people. However, you know, my people be my coworkers. Mm-hmm. However, I'm I'm a public sector worker for one thing, and and for another, um, and I'm kind of a labor aristocratic public sector worker if I'm completely honest. And for a, another um, issue is, uh, I have to tell my union to screw off all the time. Hmm. Um, very people are very naive about unions. When I was talking shit about the UAW during the uh, John Deere strike, for things that anybody should know, you know, for the, all the reasons that we're talking about and that corruption scandal they had, people push back with me on Twitter. Like now is not the time to be attacking the United Auto Workers. Yeah, like, I have. I've always how naive are you? That. You think that the work that the workers are coterminous with the union that they have the same interests? I was talking about the United Auto Workers Union in 2007 and how bad they fucked up and screwing over their younger members for decades, and that was part of how they could get totally screwed in the settlements that basically finished them off. And, you know. And why people like my brother and my stepfather, both of whom are directly related to the auto industry and have been workers there. Enti- well, one one is now a professional. The other has been a worker their entire life. Hates them like passionately. Um, there's people in my I have one of the strongest private sector unions that exist. And there's a lot of animus towards the fucking union. Of course, there is. And look, this like when we talk about. The problem with American unions is not because the bureaucrats are craven. It's not because they're greedy or corrupt or whatever. No, it's not because they've, they've made the choice even to ally with the Democratic Party and put all their eggs in this legalistic policy basket. Right. That is highly historically determined. And the reasons go back to the 1970s, the 1940s and the 1930s. Right. Yeah. But the but so so why from again, the New Deal forward is actually a part of. The, I mean, what we didn't finish this, and I was bringing this back earlier because we've yeah. been kind of. But like, like the Popular Front ended the ability is what began the Democrats able to absorb the unions and absorb the labor movement, and that was almost a death cow for the American. Like it, it, it was also. Increase. I mean, we always make a joke about how the SPUSA until like maybe the last three years has basically just endorsed the worst parts of the Democrats because it's part of its popular front strategy and has the CPUSA. Yeah, CPUSA. Excuse Mm me. It's part and it's part of its popular front strategy and has been forever. Like, Mm -hmm. but that really starts in 1930. Routerism. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, hundred percent. And it's it's funny that they're fi- that the CPUSA is finally learning from that after <laughs> almost a hundred years. They're they're <laughs> fucking pushing back against the entryism of the patriotic socialists. I don't know if you follow that. Yeah, but, I saw uh, that. It was that's hilarious. Really interesting. Very very interesting. Well, the that's funny thing about the patriotic socialists is some of them I've known to have have. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but. Uh, they should. Th- this individual showed up at a conference with Alexander Dugan, and people were shocked. But I actually, because I've been because I was part of the right, and mm. even had no people in that part of the right, I knew that they had connections two years before that happened. Mm. Um, one thing I will tell you is, Red Brownism is this thing on Twitter that's often used to shout people down, and mm. maybe even like the Alex Reed Ross scandal is it was hilarious because mm. like that was kind of predictable. But one thing I will say is it's not unreal, um, and it's not and it's not based on uh, um, some sort of like abstract fallacy. Like the the thing that they're right about is that the American working class is not attracted to the left. No, they're, they're not attracted to communism. So what the patriotic socialist then says is that we need to go back to like Marxist Leninism of the 1930s, 40s and 50s in order to like relate ourselves yeah. to an American working class, which is still patriotic. And right. so, so you can argue with where they go with that and their practical prescriptions for it. But you can't argue that they're wrong. Well, that I mean, what is what normies is about that? Aren't interested no. in communism. Of course, that's true. The, that that deviation in the third international after the end of the third international is really a reversion back to what killed the social democratic movement in the 1910s. Mm. I mean, if I say, I mean, killed it literally. You know a lot more than of this stuff than I do. Like this is the time period that I'm really most interested in because even economically, because also from classical from classical Marxist analysis. I don't think Grossman was being unfair. I don't know that there's a, there was ever a totally clear final breakdown theory in, in Marx, but I think Grossman was right that from the logic of everything we had seen, including the profitability crisis that you've seen, that basically World War II, what led up to World War II should have ended capitalism. Um, what what people underestimated was was the destructive, like the, both imperialism and the destructive capacity created afterwards. Um, well, I was having this conversation with Matt Crispin the other day, and he was—he said basically what saved capitalism was the United States. Yeah, it was this like infinite, this this still infinite zone of like extensive and intensive accumulation that existed outside the destruction of that war that could then again become this hegemon and this driver, you know, of accumulation. And that was how the, the United the States was war. able to not have those a bunch of crises in its transition to fully developed capital too, is because it had a place to dump off its overproduction. Like, and it had um, its ready-made imperial sphere that it had since the eighteen. It inherited. It didn't 30s. have to bleed for it. Like <laughs> yeah. that, we you know we bled in quotation marks for 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 carving out our sphere of influence. Kind of like we get pissed off about China and Russia doing now. Not to defend China and Russia, but that's what they're doing. Oh yeah. Um, it's and rap, more Russia than China, to be frank. And right. France. And France. Yeah. France is doing the same thing in West We're, Africa right now. It, it, it's traditional. It's traditional for the last 200 years build imperial influence, right? Um, But I learned when I learned in my 20s, even as a conservative, there were national governments in West Africa paying France money. I was like, that's absurd. The Haitians paid, I think, until the 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 Haitian um, 
state, I think, was paying back the French for all the slaves that had been freed up until like the 20th century as well. It's incredible stuff. Yeah, it's it's so when you know this, you you can kind of you can kind of see the kind of impasse that we're at. But why has the left gotten the way it is? And I, I a lot of times we blame the left as if it's just a problem of uh, betrayal or if it's purely professionals. There's real I, like the DSA has a bunch of real workers in it. I'm not gonna mm-hmm. lie. I mean, yeah. like there's some in my union. There's but, some yeah. in the carpenters' union. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that happened is the Trotskyist organizations, with the exception of the IMT and the and the most wild ends of the Sparts. They, they all liquidated. liquidated. Yeah. Like, okay, the ISO had its own reasons, um, which was its own scandal. But like, the, and what's funny is that, but here's what people haven't noticed because they're because we're American centric. The trots have been doing this everywhere. Like, Except Argentina, where they're the third largest party in government. Right. <laughs> but but, but like, that's very specific to Argentina. But like, if you look at like the Trotskyists around the world, they're actually all their organizations are in decline, with the exception of like some marginal ones like the IMT that have grown based off of probably the decline of other Trotskyist groups because right. they're like the only game in town now. Um, what does that mean? Like, what? Well, one of the things that I've been fascinated with is like we've also seen Maoism die, like real Mao, when well, I say real Maoism, but like 70s people, style new communist movement. Yeah, 70s style new communist anti-revisionist Maoism that became I, I should add, also some members of my union leadership are old uh, uh, industrializers from the Maoist point in time. They're still around. Right. Well, what What's hilarious is those, like if you look at what happened to the radical Maoists in California, they became Jim Kwan, the mayor of San Francisco. So, like, <laughs> they just became Democrats over it time. They became uh, Van, Van, whatever the fuck. Van Jones. Like, Van Jones, yeah. yeah they I mean, became they just, Democrats. Right. I yeah. mean, you know, Rob Reich had a relationship to the RCP through the SDS. I just want to point that out. Um, <laughs> so, like, so, like, when people are like, oh, those are trots, because, no, we, all of them did. All of them, and no one asked. And, it, and they're still not asking because we're going to see it again. Um, yeah, sure. Our generation, me and you are both in, are like with that millennial Gen X borderline and the Gen Xers yeah. are all reactionaries because, but I've always said like to defend Gen X, think about why, like of course, of the course. Soviet it's Union the failed, yeah. the 80s happened, yeah. the Democrats pivoted hard, yeah. neoliberal, like yeah, the Union sucked. Like, of course they're reactionary. Why do you have like <laughs> the Gen X has made history, but not under conditions of its own choosing. <laughs> right. So like, like also grew up with conspiracy media back before we realized it was ever going to be politicized. Like, and, and their one big shot, which was alter globalization and the anti WTO shit of the 1990s was crushed by nine 11. Yeah, it was. And I was part I, literally, I was part, I was of, part of that. <laughs> like, like I remember it happened in real time. It made me a conservative. I've talked about this many times, but like going from my first, my first real political moment that wasn't like me hanging out with girl squat punks as a, as a kid. Um, and then accidentally for real ending up homeless. But, uh, then, then going out to, well, right before then going out to 98, saving, like say, doing a bunch of kind of illegal physical labor to make money, to travel out to the process. Uh, as part of Zine Culture, I, like that's what I did. Wait, you were at Seattle in '99. I was. At, I was there. Wow. Okay. Um, that was the only. That was, and if I was like 19, I didn't know the fuck I was doing. Um, I was. I wasn't even 19 yet. I was 18. Um, and 
like when they started chaining each other there and bank with bank chains to like i was like this is dumb i don't like that was my response because i had no i had no idea what i was going into um okay so what's funny is people saw that at the time they saw it as a victory because the because of the g8 dissemination some stuff didn't happen but then I've always taken it as an art of failure because 9-11 happens and I went to Sea Island, which is where the next round of G something talks were happening in uh, globalization. GTA or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And nobody was there except for a bunch of libertarians and some weirdos from International Answer. Hmm. Like, that was it. Which is and, the Stalinist, right? That's the answer. Well, I mean, they were Stalinist. They, okay. they were trots back then. Because the the WWP and the PSL were trots, the the Marciites. I mean, it's it's hilarious. That the this biggest... is look. If you're gonna do trot spotting, just have Andy back on. He's yeah. the best at this shit. He can give you the genealogy. It's I screw funny. up every now and then between like uh, between like uh, Salt Australia and Salt America because Salt Australia is Cliffite and Salt America is the militant. I used to, I, I was, um, I was, uh, close with Paul Maddox Jr. for some time. Uh, mm-hmm. I haven't seen him in a bit, but he was a friend and we kind of, you know, orbited around each other. And he showed me this amazing, like, graph, this, like, chart, this flow chart <laughs> of all the different splits of Maoist groups in the 1960s and 70s. And there's, like, the Revolutionary Workers Party of Workers. There's, like, the Labor Party for Workers of America Workers, the MLM or whatever. And he gets like he found out at the end that it was like the same seven or eight people that had just branched out into like all these different sectarian organizations based on splits over like campism or whatever the fuck. Yeah, because people think it's only Trotsky has to do that. But like if you go back to the 70s, but my point is what we're seeing right now is something similar. We're going to see a lot of leftists. They're going to dissipate. I think a lot of them are dissipating conspiracy culture, which is what happened to a lot of the Gen X. People forget this. But what happened to the Gen X left um, after 9-11 eclipses the ultra-globalization movement is they became truthers. Yeah. And a lot of them became right-wingers through that movement. Right, yeah. Um, So there's that. We're going to see a lot of people – I I guess – the thing is, though, it's hard to see who – like who's going to find the Democrats attractive. I mean, obviously a large part of the DSA does, but – then you have the fact that there's a massive media grift. This, this I mean, calling it a grift is actually wrong. I call it a grift because it's a way that people are making money. That implies that they're fooling people. I think most of the people involved actually believe what they say. Oh, so, if you're talking about the podcast and like left the podcast, sphere, but, 100%. but also like the publication sphere, like mm-hmm. like all of it. They're so like it's it's not actually in the grand scheme of even the media market. It's not a lot of money, mm-hmm. but. But it's enough. To, uh, it's like the Delinka in Germany, which is like a small political party, but is able to get matching funds from the state so they can fund all sorts of shit all over Germany. And like enough leftists and activists can live off of it that it becomes its sort of own internal economy, essentially. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, but you like, have that with the DSA and you have that with like whatever, like atomized leftists there are throughout the country. Well, I mean, how long is it going to take Jacob to become Mother Jones? Ask like, Boscar, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like, because because it's basically Boscar's conscience. I mean, and literally, maybe Boscar's conscience that keeps it from doing so now. Like, I'm listen. I'm I'm friends with Boscar. I mean, me and him have hung out socially many, many times, and I he truly believes. Like, you can say a lot of things about him, but he's not like big money he's a, cynical. He's a social Boscar. democratic. 
uh, he's a, he's a Vivek, Marxist. Yeah, he's a Vivek Chiburite, which right. is like a real tendency. And I know Vivek Chibber too. It's, there's, this is like this isn't people trying to fucking um, you know make some filthy lucre off of having socialist magazines. It's people who truly believe it and found a media niche, a sphere where they could like publish things. And but this, like, this is where uh, like cynicism without personal denial, or, like personal denunciations, is really important. Like because there is a sense, and I know this from my own role in this, hmm. like. I worked for Zero. I saw Doug Lane. Doug Lane really believed and still believes that if he could ride the cultural niches, he could sneak in some Marxism to make Marxism more popular. And for a little while, he seemed to be successful doing it. Jacobin is that on like 10 times the scale. Oh, big time. It's all like the socialist lessons of the spaghetti Western. Or whatever. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so what you see there is like, like, I don't think Mother Jones started out as a cynical progressive grad either. It came out of the same sort of uh, tradition in regards to labor. It's just where is it going? What is it going to do? And how's it going to get funded? And where's the audience going to go? And, you know, a, a true, you know, a Vivek Chibarite, uh Austrian Marxist social democrat, you know, and I have, I actually have Austrian Marxist sympathies. And for my listeners who don't know what that is, that's the people who like, thought that neither response to um to uh the conflicts between social democracy and the emerging communists were actually good um they also had interesting answers about uh about culture and respecting cultural differences but never making that like there's a whole thing there's a a whole long theory of I'm interested. I, I didn't, I'm not familiar with that stuff. You need to, like, if you want to start with Otto Bauer, the early Frankfurt School, not the Adorno, who were coming from school, but the Frankfurt the Pollock School. And, uh, Pollock and... Uh, Pollock Grossman and the people of of the 40s, they were all Austro-Marxist. Pollock kind of get moved away from Austro-Marxism, um, but that's where they all started. Uh, I, I, to be honest, I, don't, I only know about this stuff from listening to you. I mean, you, yeah, it's, <laughs> so it's, it's all, like it's all very interesting. But, yeah. but but these tendencies, though, the, I think there's a tendency to overemphasize the importance of these tendencies, hmm. right? Like our like, so you know, I I am a, a kind of a council communist with a background in post Trotskyism, blah blah. But but like, what actually drove me to this at these time periods were conditions that were not in my control, hmm. like. I there were I did pick between the options available at the time and the options available before Occupy were like Chomsky I anarchism, Prime Think anarchism, partially uh, me too. Uh, I was going to fight with Prime Think anarchists during Occupy. We'll talk about that another time. Um, uh, um, uh, Cliffite or Grantite Trotskyism, mm. um, really, really like. Anti-Chinese Maoism, which are people like what? I'm like before 2016, Dungism was remarkably unpopular in the U.S. Left. Oh my like, God, I remember. Yeah, it was <laughs> shocking to see it return with such a vengeance. It it, it returns. All right, I'm gonna probably piss people off with this shit, but it it comes out of uh, despair. Like I got a DM from this one guy. He was like a Red Sales dude. I don't know if you know RedSales.org. They're like, yeah, I know who they are. Yeah, where uh, he basically like dressed me down. He said, "There's no." revolutionary potential whatsoever of the working class in the capitalist core in like settler colonial the united states or 
you know, imperial uh, Europe. There's no chance of it. So why do you stress yourself out, man? President Xi has it under control. You know, just kind of like allow yourself to, to feel the power of Chinese communism. They're going to do all the work for you. Just stop stressing so much and let the Marxists within the, the Communist Party of China build socialism. It's cool, dude. And that's a very, and, and honestly, as I'm reading it, I'm like, that's probably a good idea. I had a lot a, less stress, a lot less thinking and pondering about the world than I have right yeah, now. Yeah, but then you have to explain all the labor actions against the Chinese government. No, 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 no. You have to. <laughs> like, the, the mass wildcat strike wave, you have to completely ignore that. The hukou system of like labor passes and all the class struggle that yeah, exists I, between I, the I, rural. I, the hukou just system. Ignore, ignore all that stuff and just say, save us President Xi. And it'll be so much better for your mental health. And it's well, true. Yeah, my friend Gene Bajalon, who is who's actually social democrat adjacent, actually said the same thing that pre, that Xiism is just like FDRism. It's essentially a sign of giving up. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I had a left communist friend who was a co-editor for me at North Star, who became an editor of Richard Magazine, who became like a hardcore, you know, he became a hardcore uh Dungus Gist for a while before it was actually popular. Because he said, like, look, the, I have to believe that communism is possible and believe that communism is possible. I must believe that there's a communist state in the world. There's only one, if so facto. Like, and I'm like, this is really dumb logic, but I get where you're coming from <laughs> oh, because you're just you're despairing. Yeah. Right. 100%. Like, um, and then uh what it's interesting when you meet when you meet Marxists who spend a lot of time in China, a lot of them become missionaries. <laughs> uh, like um, not but, Twang, but the other ones, yeah. No, I've talked. I, I, we, I was talking to Kazakwaz, is just you know, centrist China reporter who you know has some has some left sympathies and is also not unfair to China at all. Mm-hmm. Um, like his goal is for like the top between the U.S. and China, and for both, but he doesn't think that's possible anymore. Um, Remains to be seen, but if one thing, one good thing that the Dengists and Chiists do is uh, they're right that we should be helping to, as Americans, ratchet down the tensions between China. Yeah, and yeah, it would, yeah, exactly. I agree. I do this. I try to do the same thing. <laughs> it would put you in a weird situation where you're like, okay, China is, uh, it's at least sixty percent capitalist. Um, what if you if you want to put a meaningless number on it? Um, and, um, and yet you're also like, but. Like we need to ramp down this stuff with China and the United States. It's not good for anybody. In fact, with the climate crisis, it's world ending. Like, frankly, yep. like, so, you know, it's it's something where like, I don't want. But their politics seems to be fading too, even like really quickly. Like these these cycles, post Bernie, and I might name this this episode actually after my uh, my. My friend Max Cijo over there at Superstructure Podcast talking about the specters of Bernie. Because in some ways, I do think that what we're seeing with the left right now and this inability to cope with reality is actually this. It's a fact that a whole lot of people got politicized in a time that they forgot the conditions of what the U.S. has been. Um, And then they could... And then they also got into this Bonapartist frenzy, but not in a time where Bonapartism was even remotely because I, I i just remember telling people like even if bernie wins what's he gonna do i was saying like, the same thing. <laughs> like... i was saying the same thing i was i always with bernie i i knew like the gambit was an upside down one that you could use a political movement in order to create a class movement 
I mean, that was basically what, you know, the, the people who were serious about Bernie actually changing things, like the non-FDRites, were like, well, Bernie will get in, and then he will, like, using his bully pulpit, and maybe some, like, executive orders, maybe a bill that could be passed, which is unlikely, but basically use that in order to, like, uh, convince the working class to start fighting for itself, to, like, create from top right. down a working Which class movement. And that's and that's not out of the realm of possibility, but you can't imagine that Bernie's going to be able to go in at this late date uh, and, and institute uh, FDR style or Scandinavian style uh, social democracy, which was always the kind of uh, political horizon of most of these people anyways. Well, it was funny because I was like, what you guys are basically arguing is not like, is the old... Uh, French Marxists, like we're going to, and actually sometimes even the ISO, we're going to push for a lot of liberal reforms that we think are going to fail behind the contradictions. And like, I'm always like, Marx says, this is the only strategy that I have a quote from Marx against that. Like (laughs) the working class will never trust you. If you do that, if you advocate for a reform, believe in the reform, like, um, because if it's like, Oh, we knew it was going to fail the whole time. People will be like, then why did you get us involved? Yeah. Why'd you why? bother us? Leave us alone. <laughs> like, we could have been desperately disappointed on our own. Like, we <laughs> yeah. didn't need you for that. Right. Um, and also, it shows that you don't have faith in us because you wouldn't tell us what the odds really were. Um, and that's been like, that's kind of my my stance on like the. I, I, this is when, my, when I fight with MMTers. They talk about the the most progressive thing they have actually would be amazingly progressive, which is the 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 uh, full employment guarantee, mm. but which is something like you barely have in even a, like socialist countries. Yeah, but, full employment was a disaster for the capitalist class. You know, right? Even, even the the bullshit like uh, Federal Reserve interest rate one that we had. At, you know, right? But if you uh, really really think about this um that's like the 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 classical marxist opposition to such schemas actually makes sense because we the 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 state is eventually you're going to hit your productive capacity limit and you're going to have rapid inflation and it's going to discredit you um so you'll have a socialist state doing a volcker shock <laughs> right which which happened in the 1920s actually in Germany. oh really it, like so what people don't know is Shaktism, which was which was the the monetary theory of uh, uh, what became the monetary of fascists, even though Hitlerists don't use it, they actually do something else. But was the print money theory kind of proto MTT because chartalism and was part of the Salian program too, and it got picked up kind of by the right in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, that led to the hyperinflation kind of the people who ended up fighting inflation and also fighting labor were the S payday. And they were fighting labor because they thought that if you could encourage monopoly development, you could just seize the the capitalist firms and then you had the socialist structure there. Right. Um, And they started fighting inflation um, because – and so it just looked like they were the people like Hilferding and whatnot who were actually suppressing the working class while also developing their own like professional core that was huge. Like, And so that – like most of labor did not side with the Nazis, but there is a sense the, that even though the SPD still controlled the majority of the labor vote, a lot of it kind of sat on its hands during that crisis. Um, I mean, what like the the broader question of like wh- whither the left, I guess, right, is like 
I think that I'm not like an anti-leftist per se, but I, I, I don't think that the left, uh, as it's used colloquially, is, is even really relevant anymore. Because what the left always presumed going back to the 1930s and before in the United States, going back to the, to the 1890s, is that there's some sort of like um, cohesion of interest between communists and, and like progressives. And I, I, never, I think that that was like there was a historical moment where that was true to an extent up until the 1970s. But I think it's long since been uh, dead in the water that we should be tailing um, Democrats and progressives, that we should be coalitioning with them, that if you're serious about communism, you need to keep involved in like, you know, uh, political projects that are completely and discourses, which are completely alien to the actual like class itself. I think that like, the only serious people right, are the people out there right now saying that what we need to do is what we always should have been doing, which is orienting ourselves towards the actual, really, truly existing working class in the communities and workplaces in which they live and we live. And instead of doing this spectacular sort of like abstract politics about uh, culture stuff and, and winning people over on like various different minute policy points of their own like miserable fucking lives instead like at least for now dissolve yourself into the class you know there's no there's nowhere else to be looking right now and fortunately now why this shit's so exciting since covid happened that's a fucked up way to say it is that you're starting to see working class self-activity again so it's not like you just need to get a shitty union job like you would 20 years ago and manage workers you actually have something that looks like an embryonic militant class movement that could be rising in this country don't you want to hit your fucking cart to that don't you want to be a part of that or or are you ensconced in your fucking excel spreadsheet job in order to like deign to go down and listen to let alone join people who are like literally as we speak struggling against capital against their union and against the state one thing i would say to to add to that is what i think you can easily misconstrue these points as a post-left or anti-left point um, where we're like we we need to tail workers. I don't think you tail. Like I, I go to my job every day, and admittedly, I have an kind of elite job. Um, people don't. People actually kind of know my politics are nuts. Like I, I I'm, I'm I'm sketchy about it at first until I have a personal relationship, so they don't think I'm a total weirdo. But like I don't hide my politics particularly, except for my students. Um, and. I have, like, I think that that approach has worked way better than me trying to, like, oh, I'm going to tell people what I think they want to believe, like, which is the right, the right populist thing. But I do think there's a or lot to, of or to incrementally gra- drag people over by using Democrat talking points, as right. though somebody has to buy into the Democratic cultural and political program in order to be a working class militant and be militated against right. the With, capitalists. It's it's absolutely untrue, and thinking so, that fucks you up. Well, I mean, this is, I'll give you an example of this on, on on sexuality issues. Both sides of this question tend to take the wrong stance. One is like, I. I, I I'll explain like why I got mad at uh, Doug Lane about Jade Suprell because I was like, okay, you're picking up talking points that right now are tending right wing. And, and also, you know, whether you're turfy or not, and that's, that's, I can't, I, I actually can't know your soul. Um, I know Doug really well, but it is uh, w- the entire debate. The fact that you thought it was important to fall into a media debate about this 
um, is absurd to me. Like, like, yes, people are alienated by canceling. And yes, that's why the right has been able to make such hay out of it. But let's also be, be real for a second. Like, that's a media discourse. It doesn't affect most people. And a great majority of people, other than the fear that they might be censored for something they say accidentally, don't care. Don't get. Don't give a fuck. Right. They, they just don't care. They don't give a fuck. I'll tell you, I'm in heavy construction. I'm in the aristocracy of labor. I'm in a, a conservative trade union. I'm in the white working class, like, um, I don't know, world that people imagine fucking exists. And um, there's maybe on a given job within your gang, maybe one guy who's like a big Trumpist and goes on about like BLM and trans things or whatever. But by and large, people are like, yeah, okay, whatever. They're like rolling eyes at like the weird, you know, culture warrior political guy, because people don't really give a fuck. It's something that people with like the time and the energy and the sort of uh, inclinations can get attached to, but in a way that has no bearing whatsoever on their lives or the people around them and so but then to assume that this like minority of people what is it like the 35 percent of actual voters who are pro-trump which when you break down what like the actual voters are into like the actual population uh and then into like you know whatever yeah, it's, is it's, it's, vanishingly it's like, small it's like 15 percent 20 percent of the 15 20 percent of the population like, and, then, and then of those who are actually working class as opposed to petty bourgeois right it's, or, it's gonna or be like, like 20 30 percent of that like it's yeah. it, like and, th- and then to tail these fucking people and say and to like reify the working class to be these fucking people you do yourself a huge disservice and entering into that conversation you end up on terrain that is not advantageous or even pertinent much Bingo. to the communist project. To end to like the beginnings of a serious communist project, would, which would be to cohere the very real and uh, atomized instances of self-activity on the part of the working class in this country, which the job of a communist to begin with is to cohere and bring together into something more than like some ephemeral fucking uh, I'm going to say something that's going to make people really uncomfortable. I love when um, you do that, please. Uh, but like the history of fascism in Italy is the history of actually ultras, not even uh, because Mussolini was closer to the, to the left wing of the, the left wing party, of yeah. the, of the socialist party um, trying to tell what they thought were conservative attitudes amongst the working class that led to that led to Mussolini taking a defeatist position in World War One, then fighting in World War One under under a position of defeatism, which is wild. Like he were to fight in World War One so that we'll try to have an empire which will destroy Italy. <laughs> um and then being because of the war and because of his investment in the war, it and because of tailing what he saw as the conservative attitudes of the of the working class of his quote proletarian nation unquote right his yeah. language yeah um he ends up inventing fascism he ends up inventing fascism by taking conservative elements over and then vitalizing them right well he doesn't invent it he picks up on strains that went back to the anarchist movement in france right in he the picks up on the circuit for june and surrealism <laughs> yeah. and uh and also, but he does, I mean, and then also the conservative revolutionary movement does become involved and in, you're like, conservative, yeah, it was a thing, it was in France, it was a national revolutionary thing. Um, 
So what and, you're saying is that tailism leads to maybe bad things. Yeah, it leads to very bad. Yeah. I mean, I, I, one of the it's one of the funniest times right now. I must say funny. I mean, dark. Like during the Trump period, everyone's like, "We have a fascist." And I'm like, "No, you don't. Like, you you really don't. Like, there there's some post-fascist elements in there. Yes, that's true. There are neo Nazis involved. They're they're a very small part of that. But yeah. yes, it's true." But you don't have a mass fascist movement. and But now I'm actually... I don't think it'll be a fascist movement, but I do think there's a new reactionary movement on the horizon that that may be a lot more serious than Trumpism ever was. And, and, they're, and they're, again, like the old... They're not going to become wrapped in a, in a Nazi flag. There's, no. there's enough blood and uh, degradation on the American flag for serious revolutionary reactionaries to use that flag in order to bring about horrific changes. And I don't think it'll just be white either. Like, like th- this is the part that I think is most, un- that, that, I, that I'm like, look, there's a petty bourgeois of color in this country, partic- actually, ironically, partly because of racism, because they were shut out of normal salaried jobs. Yeah, and normal become, credit and capital, yeah. Right, so, but they've become a more and more important part of this economy, and if they've survived COVID, they've gained power. So their attitude towards a lot of social programs are going to change, and I think you're going to start seeing that. Not that, not that. I mean, it's the thing, like, we don't have, what are you going to judge this on? Like, what? Because you're like, well, they don't vote Democrat. Well, I don't really care that they vote Democrat. What I care I about... Yeah. Is it in their lieu of not voting Democrat that they're becoming reactionary voters or help are vote are willing to vote for reactionaries? Yeah. And if they're voting at all, I don't see how they're not. Like, well, I mean, always classical Marxist theory, like to the extent that the petty bourgeoisie plays any role in a historical struggle, it's by vacillating between two poles of society. If there's no strong antagonistic working class movement to draw these people into their orbit politically and socially then of course it's going to go to they the go into side. authoritarian movements yeah, why like, would it they it's in their class interest too right so, they need like, someone to try to freeze the economic society like they need a strong man to come in and decomplicate this decaying system but yeah. also do so like at and a shore up their particular petty private property against the like a lot of this populism shit is about protecting petty bourgeois private property against the degradation of globalist international capital. It's right. back to that post stone essay about uh national socialism and the value form and shit, like classic. <laughs> but but I'm sorry, we spend a lot of time, not just you and me, I mean, we writ large to start talk a lot about incipient fascism what trump trump meant in that the dark storm clouds that we see on the horizon of like a newly fascism not, even the, not even the dark storm cloud that i'm worried about if i'm completely honest with you even if there like was a real exterminism fascism. or something you're no i'm at, what i'm worried what i'm worried about is like is well i tend to think i'm gonna say this like i tend to think um that climate alarmism has made people miss how utterly catastrophic this is really being. Yeah. Like the feedback systems are way worse. Yeah, I think so too. And, and that as this, like I do take the psychological research that stress is a conservatizing force. And Mm -hmm. as the stress increases on these, on these fracture areas, you're going to see new kinds of weird 
conservative movements pop up that you're just yeah. not. You, you, we aren't going to know what they are. Well, I would have Q, not. QAnon is going to seem very mild, probably compared to some of the shit people come up with. Well, you so you so like so. This is what I'm saying. We talk a lot about this because it's very real, and obviously, like people on the left have to imagine they have a worthy enemy. Not like the Democrats. <laughs> They're not, they don't seem like a worthy enough enemy. You need to create yeah, like I mean, a white like, nationalist yeah. movement. So you, you, so we spend a lot of time talking about how much time does anybody on the so-called left uh, spend talking about you know the the, the tasks and the the historical tasks of the of the socialist movement and and integrating itself into like a strong working class you know. Uh, counter tendency to all this because without the counter tendency, tendency without an, uh, a, a social force antagonistic to all of these crazy, scary, reactionary things, we're just going to slowly slip and slide into that horror world, just like in the 1970s. You know, when the when like um, it was easy, it was the easiest to, for like the ruling class to just attack the working class. Now we don't even have a working class to to to, to stand yeah. up for democratic norms or to stand up for social programs or to stand up for like the very real and important uh, cultural uh, rights that people have in this country. Uh, it, it's it's going to be bad and, and we should be spending a lot more time, more time, I would argue, focusing on like our historical tasks and what we want to build and how to build it than to fear monger about something that like we're not doing anything about. Well, ironically, right. I mean, I guess my point is, is like the more we fear monger about this stuff, the more we're actually creating. When I say we, I don't mean that like, Oh, we are actively somehow making these fascist movements real, but we're not, not. Um, uh, no fascist movements need the antagonism of the left in order to rise. And reactionaries have basically invented the CRT and and trans, I don't know, whatever the fuck the, the I, trans I, trans people are coming to like sexually assault people and whatever. They've created this in order to have a, an opponent worthy I, of how reactionary a program they have. They're calling Biden a communist because they have to because there's no decent left for them to actually attack. Yeah, that's totally true. And one thing I would add to that is the left's resp- the 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 liberal left's response to this has been to double down on its talking points and then miss when one of its talking points grew up. But the, the big one is the Virginia case where there was someone who, who took advantage of trans bathroom laws and actually raped two girls. And then the, the, the school board looked like it was just in denial that it even happened. Now school boards hide rape all the time. I'm like, that's kind of like, so that's not new, but like, and it's, it's statistically almost ephemeral that it happened it'll probably like but the thing is when when leftists double down on stat on stats like that and then i'm like all it takes is one counterexample for that to rhetorically not work and that one counterexample in the infiniteness of time is almost inevitably going to happen yeah of course so it's just like you need to you need to change your st- but we're not like but this like, is my, yeah yeah my difference the sexual st- uh, on this uh section general generally stuff is i'm like I'm like, it hasn't, I mean, for good and ill, it hasn't fundamentally actually changed a whole lot of people's lives. Um, yeah, and no. So, and so, like, um, we, like, so on this issue, I'm like, well, we have to, like, catering to people's bigotry isn't going to help anybody, it, nobody at all. No. Um, but I do think we have to admit that, like, to people who are not, activated to protect really marginalized groups. And that's a lot of people, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it looks like we're going out of our way to protect a very young, seemingly affluent, and some people's minds very white, even though that's an unfair uh, categorization, um, group of people that are a, at most, one in ten of the population, at the most generous. Um, and so I just think we have to figure out a better way to frame how we do this. Yeah, um, which is not to say we need to tell these rightists to like throw trans people under the bus because it's not, it's not that I'm not willing that's, to do that. That's anti-communist. I mean, communists right. have always been about the, uh, the 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 human rights of minority populations. Yeah, you know, it, 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 and it's just also just get, when they get craven in like the 30s. But yes, yeah. uh, in general, <laughs> at least theoretically, yeah, right. In general, but. You know, and I say this all the time, and people think I'm talking about social issues. I'm like, if you don't want a Nazis, you don't build a value my republic, right? Like, oh. if you really like, you don't you don't go out like I'm going to fight Nazis. I'm going to stop the social conditions that lead to Nazis being a you know a viable response. Of course. Um, and people think I'm talking about like, well, well, you know, the decadence of the. No, I'm talking about the economic problems. Uh-huh. Actually, hundred like percent. People focus on the decadence when the economic problems seem unresolvable. It's a fucking right. cope. It is an impasse. I'm calling this, I've been calling this the great impasse because the ruling class has no fucking way out of this. They're muddling their way through. Everybody below the ruling class is coming up with uh, reason after reason after reason to not focus on this, on the, the terrors of this particular crisis moment in society. And the communist left or the left in general or whatever isn't talking about material conditions. They're talking about Democrat programs that can maybe help those things out, but they're not, by and large, I'm saying not everybody, uh, is again oriented towards what we should be oriented towards. And the thing about this country, and I've realized this very vividly over the last five years, somebody who voted Ralph Nader in 2000 for president, who's always hated the Democratic Party from the very beginning, is that there is a massive maw, like a black hole at the center of American, not just politics, but also society in general. Um, That is this like gravitational field that pulls everything into Democrats versus Republicans. It is like insane how powerful this fucking thing is. And it's insane how people, the Bernie socialists and the people that came after that, even if you're calling yourself a Maoist or, 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 or whatever, are still sucked into this very narrow scheme of debate and discussion about where society should be going. And that's why, again, like we don't want to be anti-leftist. I don't know, but like there, there is there, it is true that there is to an extent a way that communism and the fight for it, the, the working classes fight for itself exists, maybe not outside of, but at least only adjacent to the right left political spectrum that exists uh, in the United States, certainly right now. I think it's possible to stake out a communist position and a communist practice that is cognizant of those things happening, but doesn't make that the center of politics. That instead argues that a different type of politics, a different kind of organization in society is possible, one that's based, again, around uh, the working class and its its very real struggles, the working class and all of its diversity. Right. I mean, one thing I would – I think my only addition to that would be – like, I wish we'd stop trying to piecemeal shit. Like, that's something Democrats can do or Republicans can do because they're essentially trying to patch together whatever established order. We can't make those kind of promises. Like, like, like at the end of the day, 
what do we advocate? We're advocating for a completely different society at almost every level. Like, and, and, and admittedly, like when we talk about this with the working class, I think it's a big sale. Even the working class people are like, okay, you know, we're, we're advocating something huge. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems utopian, but look at what all the people who say their shit isn't utopian give you, which is Jack. Yep. Um, and make and sometimes they make things worse for you. Yep. Um, I mean, even something like the fight for fifteen by now it should be like the fight for twenty seven <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. And also, like, capitalism is now giving it to a lot of people anyway it because can't. of the labor shortage because it can and and. Inflation means it's not going to matter. Yeah. So it's like, oh, I, yeah, it's it's like it's like it's it's a it's a dumb it's a stupid way to say. It. I'm kind of losing steam a little bit, but like it's very hackneyed to say it. But like, in some sense, like the utopianism of communism is more realistic than imagining that Bernie Sanders is going to bring in a return to 1950 style you know, social democracy in the United States. I think that's literally true. I think you can't go back in time, but everybody wants to be backwards facing. They want to find that point in world history of the left or whatever that they can hitch their their wagon to. And I think it's really late in the day for that because I think that, again, this is a moment of crisis and it's also a moment of possibility, right? I don't think it, maybe it is the terminal crisis, the Grossmanite terminal crisis to the extent that like, we're not solving the climate crisis. So human civilization like doesn't really have a lot more infinite accumulation on a finite planet uh, left before things get really different really fast. But like, as hard as it is with a depoliticized population, I think ultimately we need to be um, pointing to like, um, yeah, pointing to like to, to how what we advocate is different from like an incremental sort of like uh, Democrat uh, culture war sort of um, narrative. Yeah, I think we I think we have to, and I think we also have to realize that a lot of our quote allies on the left unquote, even for those of us who don't take this post-left thing all that seriously we're going to get called all kinds of things for doing this um and we're not likely to win i, I yeah. like I, I i i always like i like to remind people that because i i personally think it's better to know your odds than someone blow smoke up your ass i know that this may be like something that people completely disagree with me on but like uh, look at the history of the trotskyist movements right the final struggle the final struggle was how many final five. struggles have we had <laughs> <laughs> like, like I, I remember when, like, you go back and read the, the 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 thing that we call the transitional program, and it's predicting that capitalism is going to end in the fifties, and it's just like, it's you know, it's like, well, how how do you feel about that one? Like, yeah, well, they're but, not alive anymore to defend themselves, though. right? To be fair to them, but um, that's a good place as any to end on. I think part of the problem is you've not been thinking about the same things for a long time, and. Yeah. There's not a lot of outlets for this, weirdly. Um, there's, like, there's you, you're into the regrettable century, people. I, I am. I work too. with I work with them on a on a project now that's about the last mode of production transition, which was antiquity and the feudalism and the feudalism and the capitalism and uh, and characters of Europe. And because we we're we are now deciding that to under that Marxists in general have not looked at prior modes seriously enough because of our tendency to not want to make trans historical theories, which is yeah. makes sense. But like, you got to sometimes be realistic about how things happened. You got to get into your Banaji sometimes. You got to get yeah. to, to your Banaji. I, I listen. I listen to Varn uh, mm-hmm. on your various things. I um, 
listen to regrettable centuries. Sometimes I listen to uh, swamp side chats, which I think is really good. I read endnotes. I think they're serious. I read Chuang. Uh, I think I actually like Swang better than Endnotes, to be completely honest, because I feel like yeah. I feel like Swang limit Endnotes does things where like Endnotes has a good point, but then they like say it for all of capitalism and all countries as if it's true at the same way everywhere. Yeah, and they, so Endnotes do that. <laughs> Endnotes allowed like a decade ago, and I'm friends with the end, like literally like uh, good friends with one of the guys from Endnotes, and I kind of came up in that in that milieu. Uh, I was at the uh, International Sikh Conference with mm-hmm. Theory Communist and uh, and the remnants of Aufheben and and all these these groups across Europe or whatever. So that's kind of what I come out of. It opened up, I think, a really interesting uh, intellectual terrain for trying to understand the present moment, if nothing else. Uh, I think that um, I think yeah, Benyev. I hope Antifada. Yeah, but NF has done great work and uh, notes adjacent. I think Antifada has done a pretty good job. I got to say, Matt Chrisman. Doesn't talk about like this stuff too much. I've been kind of trying to encourage him, and we're going to do an episode on there, really existing you, you are, <laughs> you you are one of the like. So I I will say this on air. I don't know Matt. Um, uh, people who know me closely do know Matt. And then there's been like this pool for the great Matt Varn talk, but I don't know what yeah, people think they're going to get out of it. No, but, I think it would be great actually. Um, but but I've always felt like Chrisman historical knowledge was the he was the only person when i ever when i did i don't listen to chapel i've never really liked it but but when i did listen to it or when matt spoke matt was the only one who said anything similar to what i thought like everybody else was like i don't even relate to what you're saying but um matt i thought made some sense um but matt's political instincts i think it's hard for people to understand Mm -hmm. um i know a lot of people think he's like I don't know. I think what he gets stuck in is is like this, like he sees a lot of the same things we see, but he's also trying to operate in the, or he was trying to operate in the realm of immediate political viability. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. I, think that's, I don't think, I think he's, he sounds like he's kind of given up on that. I've nah, I, to, his, to his blogs, to Kush vlog finally. Yeah. So No, I, I hung out with him the other day and I, and I can safely say from some private conversations that are going to turn into uh, Antifada history is a weapon uh, episodes uh, next month when he's back in town that uh, to the extent that that was true, I think he left it. He had a great, if people aren't subscribed, I know people are actually watching this. It's just not just you and me, but uh, if you're subscribed or unsubscribed, you should subscribe to the Antifada because in our last episode, uh, we talked about uh, the value form as Antichrist. Um, which it actually literally kind of is. We had to reach the misty depths of theology, just like Marx did with fetishism, to try to understand that. So I listed the podcast. I'll I'll do it here, too, for people listening to me. Don't follow me on – because I actually kind of deliberately keep my Twitter obscure. But um, Smart. Although I'm not doing it right now. But uh, one thing I will say is uh, I listen to the left – I don't listen to a lot of left podcasts. I listen to Antifada, and I have for a long time. Thank you. I listen to Everybody Loves Communism um, uh, because of its relationship to Antifada. I kind of hate Communism 101 podcast because, like, that's so not me. It's just no, not me. I know. You're, you're past uh, that. <laughs> um, and, and when when 
I'm kind of, as a side note, I'm actually kind of glad I didn't come up in that milieu because I had to do research. And so I did a lot more of it where, whereas like there was no way, no one was going to break down the critique of the Gertha program for you outside of a college class in 2009. Or a sectarian Trotskyist group, maybe if you're lucky. If you're lucky, if you got, if you, if you survived it that long. Right. Um, Later platypus would. Yeah. Well, that's where I ended up for that reason. Um, but, a lot of smart people came out of Platypus. Ross Wolf, one of my good friends, also came out of Platypus. Well, we left I, at the same time, actually. Ross and I know each other. Like we we met we met IRL. Um, yeah, I was uh, he uh, him and uh, Alex Gendler hit me up last night because Anton Jaeger was in town. We were gonna get drinks, but we're gonna do it. I guess another day this week. So, it's good to be uh, in New York City, you know, like all these fucking people, you know them, they come in, they come out. It's uh Yeah, it's, but people talk to me when they're when they get tired of New York City and I'm like new <laughs> But um <laughs> but but to 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 stuff the to turn this to to finish this off cuz this is uh a long conversation and I hope people stayed around. I, I do think that people should, should subscribe to Antifada because I think actually some of the stuff you guys do on the other side is like I think the history of the rep- weapon episodes is probably one of the most clarifying things to uh, Christmas politics I've, I've actually listened to. Um, before then, I was kind of unclear on what his politics actually really were. Um, and um, I also say regrettable century is great. If you want to know, they know their left history. Like, and then the measures taken, which measures is a split. Taken. Which is uh, which is Jeremy and then some other people um, who are now going through the history of of the early 20th century uh marxisms particularly focusing on before the third international mm. um i don't know a lot of, about that i need to know about you know, that. people don't know a lot about it so yeah. like like what were anton uh panacook rosa luxemburg otto bauer and lennon arguing about and why oh and then all you get online is people like arguing completely ahistorical and right like, reified sectarian positions i hate that shit I, that could never be me if if there's any like credit to uh, why maybe my podcast is interesting to you and like ten thousand other people is because i never bought that that these sort of like historical ideologies these dogmas really could exist except outside of like the debates and the practical problems that people had at the time so it's incumbent upon us all of us to like if you're a marxist to read marx yeah if you're a leninist to read lenin and understand lenin where lenin was coming from if you're a stalinist even yeah go in like dig deep into fucking soviet political economy and history and if you're not at least come out the other side like knowing something if you're not a Stalinist, also don't be afraid to actually read Stalin. Some 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 of the debates, like pre 1930s debates about Stalin's positions on the national question, will actually surprise you. Um, read Bukharin. So, read Bukharin, who's both a left and right oppositionist, who's maybe yeah, one was, of the most forward-thinking Marxists of the 19th and 20th. My century. favorite anecdote about Bukharin is when he got mad at Lenin during uh, in 1818 for not doing enough to abolish the state. Published a positive review and the only issue of the left Bolshevik op- uh not opposition but the left Bolshevik journal communist um reminding Lenin that stated revolution was the, <laughs> like, <laughs> the most passive aggressive <laughs> ever read. Um king shit, it's, dude. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, hey Lenin, you wrote this, it was a good idea. Like well, a year or so ago, maybe a couple of years ago. 
Like uh, maybe so- you should uh, take it a little bit more seriously. <laughs> well, let's, listen, uh, to really round things out, I've been thinking this even before we started talking today, and I don't want this to become like a self-sucking section here or whatever, but you and me should maybe start a project. You don't have to say yes or no now, but uh, this has been, what, two and a half hours now? We've been yeah. going three hours now. No. Yeah, God. Three hours now we've been going. So maybe we do like a joint Antifada Mortal Science like series or something like that. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested in doing a, a – particularly if we can get – Edry's uh, finishing – their degree at math right now so she's a little bit more indisposed than in the past but um oh maybe just yeah. you and me yeah it might be worth doing maybe like a obviously short we have a lot to talk thing. about yeah yeah maybe there's like a few episodes or something we'll put them behind our paywalls and the real heads can uh can get down on it all right well yeah we might do that that's a great idea we'll talk about it we'll talk all about right it. i'll be in contact um Sounds thank good. you for coming on and talking for two and a half hours um and hopefully people get it. We talked about a lot of different stuff. I think it was actually super fruitful. And honestly, it was probably, probably we do need to talk more because any of these substraints could have been yeah. a fully developed episode. I could um, keep going. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, thanks for, thanks for coming on, Sean. Yeah. And people should definitely check out all the stuff you're doing. And um, I think, I think a lot of us are going to have a lot of stuff to talk about in the next year because if it, we're, it's only it's only um, 2001, I think it's only the beginning of how weird this next decade's going to get because mm. it's it's going to be a, a relevant decade. It's going to be a pivotal decade, just like the famous book about the 1970s called that a pivotal decade. We are in it, folks. We are in this transitionary period. Some, neoliberals exhausted, and something new is coming. So we yeah, should probably be part of that. What it is. But... <laughs> be probably really bad, but I don't know. Maybe it could be good. We'll see. Right. All right. All right, Matt. Thanks so much. Take care. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you for supporting Varmblog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video, and other perks, such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher of choice. Have a great evening. Uh-huh.